0: Hello, my name is Rob Simpson and welcome to Directors Lottery. If this is your first episode, Directors Lottery is a podcast in which we put filmmakers from all walks of life and all corners of the globe onto a big list that covers everything from Japanese cult cinema, classic alien comedies, and everything in between. And, using a random number generator, we pick one of these names and discuss them and their work through two films. In this week's episode, though, we won't be doing any of that. Uh, that all continues next episode. This time we'll be looking at 2021 in movies, and we'll be using this episode as a means to introduce you to many of the voices that will be a part of the show going forward. Today I am being joined by Igraine Bright from Ghouls Magazine and the Water Screen Scream Podcast. Mm. Hello there.
1: Hi, thank you for having me on.
0: Vincent Gaines from the Invasion of the Poddy People Podcast and Semi-Regular on the Notch to Kids Podcast and the Constant Reader as well as a published author.
2: Hello there. Hello, Rob. Hello, Igraine. It's uh, very good to be here. I have many thoughts, many opinions, but I'm even more interested to hear everyone else's.
0: Classy. Stay classy. Mm. (laughs) And last but not least, we have Cliff Barnes from the Devil Times Five podcast.
3: Yes, uh, that is me. Yeah, Um, Good to be here. Nice to meet you all. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about up to 40 films, plus some others. (laughs) That
0: that would be remarkable.
3: (laughs) And I hope it doesn't end too far past my bedtime. (laughs) It it
0: would be remarkable if we had 40 unique movies, but... (laughs) (laughs) it'd be a first (laughs) honestly
2: oh yeah i'd be very very impressed if that if that happens
0: right but also we'll have some guest contributions from other people we'll have graham williamson of the pop screen podcast and gav smith of the my favorite film podcast so you'll hear their voices throughout the show too so do we want to sort of jump straight into it really
3: with our our number 10s well yeah, Yeah, i uh, do Should we just talk about, like, generally how the year's been? Well, if you want us to do that at the
0: top, we can. Um, I'll be Mr. Negative first, and I don't think it's been a great (laughs) year, honestly.
3: I don't think it's been an amazing year. I haven't given anything more than four stars. Um, What have I seen? 103 new releases. Um, So, you know, uh, I would say the top 50-ish have been good. So uh, you know, it's been fifty-fifty, but nothing, nothing that really blew me away massively. But uh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see.
0: Maybe Vincent and uh, Gritton have have you been wowed this year?
1: Not wowed. Um, no, there's been nothing that has you know slapped me in the face and left me speechless. Um, but generally, I have enjoyed cinema. Maybe because you know, like the year before i didn't get out at all i hardly saw any new cinema and then this year was the first year that i could get back into the cinema um and so maybe i went in with like a naive wide eyed kind of like oh my god we're getting back to normal life oh my god yeah. um but yeah nothing slapped me in the face thankfully
2: <laughs> yeah. i must ask you grain did you see the movie slap face
1: no i did not clearly clearly you should, <laughs> clearly you should.
2: I'm going to disagree with all of you. I think this has been a fantastic year. Um, I have seen, all, I saw nearly uh, about approximately 70 new releases. And coming up with a top 10 was actually pretty difficult because I did, a, I saw a lot of five star films. Oh, um, wow. Some were straight to streaming, some were cinema releases, some were um, festival screeners, but I saw a lot of great stuff. And I'm going to wax lyrical about them um, over the course of our <laughs> chat.
3: Have you been tempted to fiddle your your top tens at all to make them a bit classier? Because <laughs> it's, it's tempting, isn't it? But what do you I, mean I, I'm, by I'm what do you honest. mean by classier? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I've, I've only got one non-English language uh, film in my top ten, um, which is weird, but um, that's how you know I honestly felt this year. Uh, most of my most of my top 10 is horror, um, which is also it makes me look like a sado.
1: <laughs> all of my top a, a, 10 is horror. Broad,
3: all of your top 10.
1: Yeah, all of my Maybe top 10 is horror. Let's be saddos together. <laughs> <laughs> There's
3: nothing saddo about... Um, I have watched a much broader range of e. stuff, <laughs> honest. Um, but, you know, um, on the other hand, 50-50 male-female directors, mm. if you're if you counting. So, you know, that's good. I think the... Um, what's happened in the last couple of years of, uh, of of women being given more of a chance to direct has really paid off. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say was that uh, I do worry that a lot of the reason that um, so many bad films came out was because there had been films that had been sitting on the shelf since before the pandemic yeah. and weren't deemed good enough mm-hmm. to come out in 2019 2020 and <laughs> certain distributors were getting desperate and going Ugh, sp- suppose it's time to put out, you know, the special. Yeah, waiting for that <laughs> sweet hit. Yeah. yeah, That sweet hit of the
0: audience's, yeah. like, No Time to Die, the new Bond was particularly... That's a 2019 film, technically speaking, isn't it? They've had it in the back pocket for that long, or at least a while. Uh-huh.
2: Of course, yeah. the, the difficulty with what you were saying there, Cliff, is that does somewhat suggest that notions of good and bad are universal. And as we know, of course, that's incredibly subjective. So the studio may have been champing at the bit saying, we've got to put this out. We've got to put this out. We've got to put, we'll put it out now. <laughs> and we, and uh, then, you know, some people say, yes, love it. Or perhaps, you know, you had a general response of meh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not the front load anything, but I'm the sort of person when uh, there's a very acclaimed movie. I'll uniformly not like it. I don't know. I think I'm wired wrong, you know. just one of those That's things. fascinating, Rob. I look forward I'm guess, to... I'm guessing that makes three of us. Sources. I'm
3: intrigued by Vincent's um, five-star cavalcade. Rare enough, yeah. And yeah, I do like what you say,
2: Cliff, that you've got half of yours are women directors. And I absolutely agree. It's been great that more women directors have been getting um, opportunities lately. I have in my top ten um, four directed by women. Um, but I wouldn't say um, I've... But no, I, I certainly didn't fiddle them. I went with the films that mm. I found most impressive.
0: Uh, personally, I struggled to find 10, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I was the same. Um, if you'd given me, like, your top 10 worst, I'd have been like, bam, 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 bam. But when I was trying to find my top, I was like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> top
0: five, I am super comfortable with beyond that. I think there's about 20 movies that could have fiddled those, those other five places, yeah. honestly. Mm. Whether that's a sign that there's just so much good stuff out there or I'm really, really picky. I'm not quite sure which side of that debate i land on, but <laughs> I guess we'll see. So um, I guess we'll just jump straight into it, really, with uh, Cliff's mm-hmm. number 10.
3: Ooh, me first. All right, number 10 um, is A Little More Flesh 2, uh, directed by Sam Ashurst, Um Honestly, I, I mean, people might go, oh, this is a bit, has he fiddled, fiddled his figures? Because nah, I mean, it's a, it's a totally unknown film. It's directed by a guy that I know personally and is a fellow podcaster and a all round good egg and everything. It's genuinely, genuinely one of the most original, uh, forms of horror I have seen in, yeah, forever. It's, it was filmed under proper lockdown conditions. So, pretty much no one meets in the film there's three uh, three actors in it including sam himself he plays himself having directed the first a little more flesh in which he played a dodgy 70s uh, horror director he's now playing himself trying to make the follow up his previous actress uh, the lovely elf has um refused to do it because of how he was in during the filming of that film the previous film so we've got immediate kind of me too issues there um and Sam gets a couple more actors in, an actor and an actress, and asks them to just film themselves on their phones, going about their day-to-day business, and somehow he's going to turn it into a horror film, uh, which is intriguing. And it's largely shown in split screen um, because, you know, the three different phone footages at once. Um, a lot of the time, two-thirds of the screen are completely black. It gets a very disturbing um, when you realise that Sam is not... Trying to make a horror film as such as an experience for the audience, for the viewer, and also for his actors. Um, it's, yeah, genuinely, genuinely unnerving. It's great.
0: I'll be honest, I can't say I've even heard of that.
3: Me neither. It played at the So Home Horror Festival in about May, I think it was, or March, something like that. Um, and he's put it out on VHS. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it either of those ways, and I don't know, don't know what the options are.
0: Oh, wow. I knew like, Vinyl was making a resurgence, but VHS, that's, that's a new one on me. Hey,
3: <laughs> uh, Grain, you were nodding along there. You, have you seen it?
1: No, I haven't. It sounds really interesting, though. Um, I'm always on the lookout for something that's a bit fucked up, I think, because oh, I'm I'm, bi- I'm very desensitised to things, and I feel yeah, like yeah. a lot of people have been like, you need to watch this film because it's really fucked up, and then I've seen it and I've been like i've been through worse given birth like you know like i just
2: well, that's a perspective.
1: I, right um so i'm always on the lookout and i think when other kind of hardened horror fans are like this is great and it always makes me really want to search out so i've just yeah. written it down and i'm like i'm gonna go watch it's,
0: it i have this little tick thinking you know uh, when people talk about a movie being extreme or violent i think oh, it's never that bad whatever's in my imagination's that bad and when you watch it it never lives up to what you've it's, you've dreamed of. But some, some directors it's, do, it's some not, do.
3: It's not extreme or violent. It's psychologically oh, no, but very disturbing. Some
0: people really look for that sort of stuff. As, um, mm.
3: that's not that really can a be segue. the most disturbing of all. It's not really a
0: segue into my number 10. Um, I mean, it's disturbing in the sense that I've got a, a pronounced in-name which I really should have rehearsed. <laughs> but from Thailand, um, from director, Banjong... Oh dear. Banjong piss Pisan... Oh, I'm not going to even try to pronounce that. It's the medium.
1: Pisan okay. Tanakun.
0: That'll take a lot of practice. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. Thank you for doing that practice.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's
0: a found footage movie, which I think debuted at the London Film Festival and surprised mm-hmm. a lot of people that were talking about it being this year's The Wailing. I absolutely adore The Wailing uh, the produce the director of that produces here, and I think he worked quite a bit on the script. But what essentially is it, uh, is a a documentary about a spirit medium in an island in Thailand. I can't remember the specific island. Fuck okay. it, no, <laughs> it's not that <laughs> <fun. laughs> one. Bum tish. Um, it's not important. No, it's not important. But essentially, it starts off as a documentary following around this um, spirit medium who is literally possessed and things. Well, it's horror, so they escalate dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up sort of, it's that tough, very, very down to worth, very realistic. There's nothing heightened about it whatsoever. And by the end, it's, it's like a mix of wreck and, well, just a lot of possession stuff with lots of gore, lots of manic stuff, mm. things going on. And it, it's really cool, honestly. Um, personally, yeah. I think I can count about five fan footage movies ever, which, swear me in any way whatsoever.
3: Yeah,
1: same. Yeah. I I actually have that as my number nine. Um I I loved it. Yeah. I I I kinda likened it a lot to Lake Mongol Oh, yeah. Totally um, the way it's it's a bit of a slow burner. Um it really kind of engulfs you in to the whole situation and then it just kinda Shit goes mad. And yeah, I, <laughs> <It did. laughs> I really liked it. I, I really, really enjoyed and it.
0: And it's a shutter exclusive that as well. It is now anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very accessible. And it, I think it justifies its two hours. I mean, that if I was going to have any reservations, I don't think it needs to be that. But it does a lot with it at the same time. But yeah, the medium, excellent, excellent film footage horror. My number mm-hmm. 10. So, uh, a grain, you're at number 10. Even though we've spot your number. So.
1: Nine, so. <laughs> yeah. My number 10 is, uh, We Need to Do Something, which is, uh, directed by Sean King O'Grady, and it's, uh, an American psychological horror, and it's all set in this, uh, typical American family's bathroom. Um, there's a tornado and a storm warning, so they move to the bathroom, which is like reinforced, um, and there is obviously a lot of problems in their dynamics. The dad is an alcoholic and he's quite, um, aggressive. Um, and they are trying to figure out what is happening because a tree has fallen in front of their only way out. And it seems like the house has fallen down. Apart from this bathroom. And uh, lots of strange things start happening. They think there's a dog outside. And then all of a sudden the dog speaks. And you're like, ah. And snakes just start appearing from everywhere. And um, it all revolves around uh, witchcraft and demons. Um, I really liked it because I really like it when filmmakers try and do situational horror. Where it's all based in the one place. I think... With restrictions, it can make people super creative, super imaginative with how they deal with a lack of other spaces. Um And I really enjoyed it. It was a really nice kind of surprise. It wasn't anything amazing or groundbreaking, but it, it was a good watch and it kept me kind of on my edge.
0: I do like those um one location horror movies because it genuinely pushes directors to be inventive, like you say, and come up with something out of the box thinking really and there's some old timers Mm -hmm. in that one room, one location, one building horror genre if that's what you want to call it. Chamber pieces I
2: believe um, is a term often used for that kind of thing. Okay.
0: Yeah, chamber in the dramatic sense, in the horror uh, there's probably some ridiculous term that somebody, some journalist somewhere has made their their crust off of. (laughs) Um, So rounding out our number 10s Vincent, what have you got?
2: Okay. Well, firstly, I've cheated slightly because I do a top 12. I'll only detail my top 10, but my 12 was, is Minari and my 11 last night in Soho. I will come back to why the 12 is important. But my number 10 is No Time to Die, which mm-hmm. was mentioned earlier. Um, No Time to Die for me is a sleek, rambunctious, knowing, yet emotional and genuinely surprising thrill ride of legacy, memory, secrets, revenge, and family. Um, what I have found over the past 15 years is that the James Bond franchise continues to be adaptable and continues to be updated and continues to entertain and surprise me. No Time to Die was one of the most high-profile casualties uh, among film releases of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And its release being pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, which meant the expectations for those who were keen to see it were raised. And it did not only live up to those, it genuinely surpassed my expectations, giving me everything I wanted from a James Bond movie, but also giving me so much more. So yes,
0: my number 10, No Time to Die. If you didn't like it, I think it deserves respect just for the absolute balls of ending the way it did quite right i guess we're not doing spoilers Oh no, no that been is, out that for a couple is,
2: that of months now that is a huge also, spoiler but yeah indeed yeah i mean it does two things that i never thought i would see in a bond film and it's even got an interesting point uh, interesting industrial point because as we're recording this it's just been released on for home release on dvd and blu-ray it's also available for streaming and it is still in cinemas. So is, yeah. simultaneous I, distribution is
3: I know. I know, I know what one of those two things is. Uh, I haven't seen the film. I know what one of the two things is. I'm now eager to look up what the other one is. <laughs> what is it? Like, Cunnilingus? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a left hand. <laughs> <looking Yes>.
0: <laughs> Would it?
1: I, I haven't seen it because I have zero interest in James Bond. I think I caught a Sean Connery James Bond at one point in my youth, and just his voice makes me want to actually physically hurl. Oh, wow. So I just, I've never seen a <laughs> James Bond film.
2: Uh, uh, I haven't seen one since GoldenEye. <laughs> I will say, grain, it's kind of impressive. It's such a British institution that who have been able to avoid it when it's when they're on tv so much is i think worthy um, of respect so i tip my hat <laughs>
1: <laughs> cheers <laughs> i'll take that
0: <laughs> segwaying seamlessly out of that somehow um let's jump around to our number nine, it's cliff
1: uh
3: it's a documentary um uh, with a very very annoying name that i'm only just getting used to <laughs> woodlands dark and days bewitched a history of folk horror uh directed by Keila janice um, three and a quarter hours it is Ooh, um, Yep Three and a quarter hours of talking about folk horror I think she stretches the definition Of folk horror quite a bit <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have thought of Candyman as a folk horror film you can make a kiss. In fact the entire yeah. I mean I can I, I, Having rewatched Candyman yesterday I can sort of see the what the point She was making um, I think the uh, the section on North American folk horror Is a stretch it's very interesting when it gets to the uh, the more wider world uh, beyond British and American uh, stuff because it's just full of films I've never even heard of. Um, it's, it's great. I mean, I've, I'm not massively into folk horror as a subgenre. I didn't spend the whole film writing down titles to watch, uh, seek out and watch. Um, but, you know, I do love watching people talk about horror. Hmm. Uh, so... You know, three and a quarter hours of that was an absolute gift. It it's really very, awesome.
0: very hard to get hold of as well, isn't it? I think it's got a release. I think it's got a release in Shudder in, in February, but beyond that, it's been very well, hard.
3: Well, I, I caught it when the Avatar Festival did an online stream of it. Uh, you know, you pay, if you hadn't got a ticket for Avatar, you could pay to watch that one film. So I did that. Um it is uh really really strong, really, really long, just like Andrex. <laughs> it, it's nice
0: to see it justifies the three comparison. hours. Three hours that's a hell of a long time for a documentary.
3: Yeah. And it's not I wouldn't even say it's comprehensive. There were films that missed out. That, you know, it's like why why haven't they mentioned Antichrist? Why haven't they mentioned the painted bird? You know. Hmm. So it's not even comprehensive. But it is great. Really, really great.
0: Um my number nine I may pop up again later, but uh, from Julia... Oh, I really shouldn't pick... the Ducano. Ducano. I shouldn't pick directors that I can't pronounce. It's really bad for
3: <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't just say piss three times before <laughs> pronouncing her name this time. Well, <laughs>
0: thematically, it wouldn't be a million miles away from... It, it's quite a guttural body horror for a lot of it. So it would be
4: mm.
0: on some sort of level there. Um, but yeah, t- Titan. I didn't see Raw because it's one of these movies where I have this reception of, oh, it, it's going to be gross. So my brain builds it to be something which is probably far worse than what the reality
3: is. Probably. <laughs>
1: but. Raw I didn't think it was raw. that bad.
3: No, Raw is beautiful and stylish. Mm, um, one yeah. of
0: these. I think I'm being too tempered by the, the festival scene where you get these stories of uh, people vomited at audition or passed <laughs> out this or that, you know. But um, Titan is. I have a lot of problems with it, but at the same time, one of the things that I really like looking for in movies are titles where you watch it and you think, wow, I've never seen anything even remotely as audacious as that. And I don't think all the risks pay off. I think the first half is is far, far better than the second half, just because it's more visually expressive and there's more ideas going on there. But on the sheer merit of what it puts out there and its sheer balls to the wall. Idea making and what's going on underneath the, the hood, so to speak. I think it just deserves a, a mention in anybody's top ten if they can stomach it. I guess because it is quite a gruelling, grisly movie, especially in the back half. It's,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, the first half is so colourful and so exciting and um, dynamic and and shocking. Uh, the, the second half, which is much more naturalistic and drab looking, is uh, <laughs> it doesn't want me to immediately watch it again. You know, I'm sure I will watch it again at some point because, yeah, Raw improved for me on a second viewing. Um, I think I'll give that a,
0: ch- a shot, though, yeah, definitely.
3: Yeah, uh, but it's good. And, and at London Film Festival, apparently someone did um, trip and and while they were running to be sick and then ended up being sick on the floor and, you know, a big... Big old venue, though, the um, <laughs> uh, Royal Festival Hall, so didn't, I'll, I'll be didn't surprised. have to stop the screen. You've got
0: to stop inviting very, very squeamish movie people to these movies. I think they're just doing it for PR purposes at this point. <laughs> so, I agree, and I think we know you're number nine, but is there anything more you'd like to say about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, my number nine, as I said, was The Medium. Um, I, I really appreciate... My favourite horror genre is Possession. Um, Yay, hands down... My absolute favourite. I was brought up in, you know, um, Catholic Ireland. So anything to do with possession, I just feel is like an, you know, a a kind of um, anarchist's way of putting up the middle finger to Catholic Ireland. Um, So I really enjoy it though when you get a horror that takes it away from Christianity and puts it into another religion, another culture. So that's something I really enjoyed about the medium and just. Kind of becoming immersed in someone else's culture and the idea of demons um, and possession. So, for anyone who's a fan of the possession genre, I definitely recommend it. Two things
0: oh. I didn't mention: the girl who gets possessed—that is a ferocious performance. What she goes through, yeah. And also, it it keys into what I like about Asian horror. It's in the Western horror, you know, you're going to survive. In in Eastern mm. horror, everybody's doomed. No matter yeah. what happens, you, you're done.
3: Yeah. And so, have you seen the Turkish remake of The Exorcist, Satan, where <laughs> be, rather than you know it's not two like Islamic imams or whatever who come in to uh, they, they just cut religion out of it pretty much altogether and just have psychiatrists or psychologists come in in suits and it's uh, okay not as effective. Let's yeah. say. the power of <laughs> Freud compels you. Oh no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So Vincent, number nine.
2: My number nine um, is the best picture winner this year, *Nomadland*. Is this anyone anyone else's list?
3: I've seen that one. I've not seen it. Okay. And the *Nomadland*
2: for with. me. Um, there's always a thing when if you if something wins best picture, and this can again raise expectations, and you either think, is it? Re- am I really going to like it as much as um, the academy members? Or, um, or even it's um, <clears throat> or you can think really really well, I, I don't get it. what was the, what were they so excited about? However, in the case of Nomad land, I can say it is an achingly beautiful, bittersweet yet tender, stark yet hopeful and profoundly moving masterpiece of solitude and community, people forgotten yet cherished and a way of life unique and strange, yet utterly relatable. Now, the critic Roger Ebert often described cinema as an empathy machine. If something can generate empathy in the viewer for an experience completely different from their own, then I think it's doing something right, and that is what Nomadland did for me. I have no kind of frame of reference for people living in that situation, and but I felt... Um, this, this, every step of the way for Fern, our protagonist, played by the magnificent Francis McDormand. Um, and, and Chloe Zhao as a director, um, creates, I think, some of the most gorgeous vistas, uh, making the, um, American landscape seem both, it's, it is like sublime. It is mm-hmm. both beautiful and magnificent, yet also terrifying in its emptiness. She- so my number
0: nine, Nomadland. She had an interest in, yeah, Chloe Zhao from being oh, yeah. hugely acclaimed for Nomadland to, well, the internet's being the internet um, with the Eternals. Well, let us say the Eternals
2: um, released to, mi- to, had a mixed response. Uh, yes, that's um, probably the most diplomatic question. I quite film, liked yeah. Eternals. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Eternals, but I did know, go into it and expecting it's going to be a Chloe Zhao film. And it is. It does have the same kind of visual composition um, and the balance that between sort of earth and sky and sea that is there in Nomadland. So it was interesting to note that she's able to bring her own distinctive style into a franchise piece. So, yeah, Hmm. I look forward to whatever she does next.
0: Indeed. Um, Number eight, Cliff.
3: Well, I've never felt more of a scumbag (laughs) to go from the sublime to the ridiculous because my number eight, after all that from Vincent, uh, is a film called Bad Hair – in which uh, is about yes. <laughs> oh god it's about me extensions it's about killer hair extensions <laughs> oh good good it's not me <laughs> it's um, directed by Justin Simeon um it's set in 1989 at a music television channel where they're trying to get um more kind of uh, black influence you know give, give more of a black um fronted and created uh, side to their output uh So, there's this woman who's a researcher or something. She gets promoted to associate producer. She's got great ideas for the channel, but the thing is, she's got an afro, and they're like, you can't, you're just not going to get on in this 1989 racist society with an afro. So, she goes to get hair extensions at the Los Angeles greatest celebrity hairdresser, and um, they turn her into a murderer. Mm. The hair hair extensions, that is. The hair hair turns her into a murderer. Um, It's What's so good about it is it really got a confident, uh, handle on its tone. Um, it changes kind of style and tone every few minutes. It really keeps you on your toes. Uh, so it's, it's like, you know, it's a history lesson, it's a drama, it's office politics, it's a body horror movie, it's a slasher, it's ridiculous, it's a fucking creature feature. Um, it's, it's it's all it's, it does does so much. It's oh, right. great. It's, it's it, it goes really good. It fun. goes
0: places. I've seen it and it's been so overlooked by everybody. It's uh, it's like um, I know I don't know if it's going to pay on anybody else's, but uh, slacks, which is about a possessed pair of mm. jeans.
3: Yeah, uh, I haven't
0: seen that yet. That's a lot more than you'd think it'd be too. You know, and it's about a possessed thing that you wear or a part of your body.
3: You can't write. You can't write these premises off because sometimes they, I mean, XD stair, uh, extensions, hair, ex- hair extensions, uh, directed by Sean Sarno, um, in the 2000s. That's also a killer hair extension movie, which is brilliant. And there was the recent New Zealand film, um, Killer Sofa. <laughs> I is, love that film. It's so so much fun in that. It's, it's got, I love it's got that one of film. the greatest twist set, twist endings I've ever seen. It's so good. <laughs> this sound that sounds like a movie that it's best to be sitting down for. Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: um So I uh, number eight.
1: My number eight is um, a South African ecological horror called Gaia. Um, it is about this, uh, like forestry ranger and they're going deep into the, again, excuse me for getting this very wrong, um, Sitsikama forest. And the forest ranger becomes lost. Um, she falls into a trap, gets a stake through her foot. She comes across a hut and um, she gets sheltered there. And she comes across these two guys, uh, a father and a son, and they're kind of living as survivalists. But um, the dad is like, there's something in the forest. You have to be really careful. Um, she thinks he's a bit loopy Um turns out he's right. There are some uh, fungus spouting spores and it causes people to turn into fungi and not the party (laughs) kind of people. Um, The reason I chose it... (laughs) I'm not – there's been so many ecological horrors come out this year. So many, you know, so many like viruses and all this kind of stuff. But this one really stuck out because of the design of the creatures and the body horror of it. I mean, you would never guess that moss and fungus are absolutely disgusting. But this is just – it's just perfect design.
3: Sorry if you've not seen Troll 2. (laughs) 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 I mean honest honestly, like have you seen the ruins as well? Like,
1: I have, yeah.
3: That there's something about people sprouting grass and weeds and moss and stuff yeah. that is just
2: uh yeah.
3: what makes Gaia scary
0: is that actual fungi is real. Mm. Yeah. It's very, very disturbing. I, I messed yeah. up my order there, I should have went but Oh I'll just I'll just sorry. jump in here. We'll amend it on Go the next loop. But uh, my number eight <laughs> has been Miss Misappropriated is a horror. Um, it is broadcast signal intrusion. Huh. Okay. It's more of a paranoid mystery thriller. It's uh, directed by Jacob Gentry. I can pronounce that one. It's a state of <laughs> And it's got little bits... Yeah, mentioning Sam Ashurst, it's uh, co-directed by his podcast buddy, uh, Dad Martin, in the, the intrusion sections. Um, on the one hand, yeah, it, it, it's quite horrific. And it's very well directed as a horrific thing. The the, the intrusions are confusing, uh, and you worry about Dan Martin. Honestly, the things he imagines. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also effectively a drama about grief and coping with the loss of a loved one, and the things that you throw yourself into to remains uh, maintain some sense of self and some sense of direction in your life, and to meld these two things together. It is quite divisive because I think people go into it expecting it to be a pure blood horror, and it's not. It's a, it's more of an investigative drama thriller, but with a very, very nihilistic and Blake tone. But it, it's very, very, very interesting. And the writers in particular, who I think did the, the scripts in 2005, previously as a short film, they really deserve to be kept an eye on. Really good stuff, I think.
3: Can't wait to see it. Even though it's produced by my good friend, Giles, who we've been mates since we were 12, I still haven't seen it. He hasn't sent me a screener, the <laughs> bastard. He's, he's, dem- he's waiting for me to pay you to watch it. <laughs>
0: it's a really interesting... I mean, it's a pressure now. You have to like it, though, don't you? Because you know him. <laughs>
3: uh, the first film he produced, I love. Like, absolutely, you know, totally love. So I think... I don't have to love everything he produces. Oh, you're
2: if you're, you know, as a, as his good friend, surely you're honest, and if you think that his yeah. work could do with improvement, you'll
3: tell him that. Exactly, <laughs> and also he's only producing, you know, <laughs> he's made, made the fucking thing, has he? <laughs> so <laughs> it's not his vision. <laughs> true, true that. Um,
0: Vincent, your number
2: eight. Oh, my number eight. Uh, when we spoke about uh, Nomadland, we mentioned Eternals and sticking there hmm. um, in that particular franchise. My number eight is Spider-Man: No Way Home. Now, this is another film that arrived with um, a lot of anticipation and a lot of speculation about who might or might not show up in it. Um, all those things aside, just as a film in its own right, Spider-Man No Way Home is, for me, an exhilarating yet heartfelt thrill ride through choices, identities, redemption, great power and great responsibility that strikes an impressive balance between innovation and and homage, action, character, and emotion. Uh, and But what I will probably remember most about this movie is the actual viewing experience, because I saw it on opening day, um, and it was a pretty packed cinema. The only packed cinemas I have been in this year were for No Time to Die, and Spider-Man No Way Home. Everything else has been less than 50% full. And never before have I been in an auditorium where the audience erupted into cheering and whooping and applause during the film, multiple times. And normally, this would annoy me. This would be like, you're in the cinema, shut the fuck up! <laughs> but this time, it actually added to the, the experience. And so, I think my feelings about Spider-Man Far From Home, sorry, No Way Home, um, are determined influenced partly by um, the you know, the film itself, which I think was um, brilliantly put together. Um, John Watts doing a great job um, of continuing his particular, or the um, the MCU's version of Spider-Man, but also being able to create that response in a cinema um, in a way that never felt like it was pandering. It felt like a way of, okay, yeah, there are some things we can do here that might just prompt particular responses from audiences If we can balance that right, I think we're onto something special. And that's what it is. And so, yeah, my number eight, Spider-Man No Way Home. There's only been one crossover so far. So this has
0: been quite an eclectic bunch. Mm. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd seen a couple of the ones you guys mentioned, like Gaia and um, Broadcast Signal Intrusion. And I did toy with them. They were
3: kind of on my long list,
0: but didn't quite make it into the top 12. Okay. So uh, number seven, Cliff's number seven.
3: Um, yeah. Okay. So Slumber Party Massacre. The, uh, kind of remake, reboot, reimagining, whatever you want to call it, of the 1983, 1982, sorry, film, directed by, uh, Danishka, Danishka Esterhazy. This one, um, like I was saying about Bad Hair, this also got a really great, uh, handle on its tone, on its tonal shifts. So it's, it's comedy horror. It veers into kind of satire, like scream style satire. It, at, t- at one point, it becomes an outright spoof of slasher movies, like when you're introduced to the because uh, it's a, it's, a, it's about a load of women who go to a, a cabin in the woods. Oh, by the way, it's the first cabin in the woods horror movie in a long time that hasn't annoyed the piss out of me. Um, but then, like the action shifts to some guys who have also got a different cabin in the woods, and that's where it turns into outright spoofery. Uh, but it, it's never never jumps the shark. It's just. I was on board with it the whole way through. Um, it, it's very, very, very 2021. It's socially aware and woke and, um, in, in the sense that it's funny and it's silly, but not in a way that annoyed me, in a way that it's earnest. It, it's doing it for the right reasons. It's, it's doing it out of the love of the genre, but also to say, you know, the 80s was the 80s. This is now. Things have moved on. It's fascinating. It's really good. Plus, the killer, um, whenever you see him, he's like doing this mad gurning face, like turning his mad eyes to the left, like as if, as if he's posing for the movie poster the whole time. <laughs> I thought that was really funny too. It's great. I watched her
0: previous movie, uh, or what was it, about 1960s animals rolling around in little cars. I can't remember the name of it.
3: Oh, oh um, the, the, the bananas Oh, bit. yes,
0: yes. I hated that. I absolutely yeah, hated it. Really yeah, I do not So know. I'm kind of like twi- once bit and twice shy. So I mean, if you disliked it too and you liked uh, Slumber Party Massacre, it might be worth a, a shot. That Can is I ask the- on that, Cliff? Because you said it you described the
2: film as woke. Do you mean woke in a genuinely progressive way?
3: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, cool. yeah. It, it's, it's socially aware. It's, it's you know, it's... it's yeah, woke. It, what, so, did you mean? Did, did you mean? Did I mean it in a disparaging way? Yes. Or, like you didn't. No, I didn't so Thank it. you. I don't no, 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 There's nothing wrong with being woke. <laughs> Damn right.
0: Depends on the execution, though, because sometimes it's tokenism and sometimes it's genuine. When it's genuine, absolutely, oh. it's the right thing. Okay, yeah. yeah, quite right. Yeah. Um, my number seven. Um, it seems like it's a run and fame of my number tens in recent years. They have a movie star and Mass Mickelson in it because he's just great. And this is Riders of Justice. Um, oh, the other one. By Anders Thomas Jensen. Um, this is a weird, weird film. Um, it starts off with a train crash. Some people die. Uh, one of the people who survives it is a statistician, a data scientist, who figures out that nothing is basically a coincidence. Um, one of the people who died on the train was the wife of Mass Mickelson, and Mass Mickelson in this is a, he's basically a a veteran soldier and this data scientist with his two friends. Uh, one is a behavioral scientist and the other one, um, he can, he's very good with facial recognition software. Um, and they come together to basically commit war or declare war to this, this gang of bikers called the riders of justice. And it's so many different things. It's a dark comedy in the way that the Scandinavians are so very, very, very good at. Um It's a drama about coming to terms of loss. It's an action movie, which is really well put together. It's a mystery movie, and it doesn't fall to pieces under the weight of all of these separate things. And credit to it, with a name as ridiculous as that, it just works. It's the Riders of Justice, it sounds like a... John Claude Van Damme supermarket DVD movie.
3: <laughs>
0: but it is not. It is so much more than that. Riders of Justice is is really, really good. Yeah. The other one would be uh, another round, and I genuinely think this is better than that one, personally. Okay. <coughs> okay, so agree number seven.
1: Uh so my number seven is uh Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, which uh is uh oh. Horror ish, horror adjacent, uh, supernatural kind of fantasy, uh, directed by Anna Lily Amirpour, and it's about, um, this character called Mona, played by John Jongsho, um, and she at the beginning of the film she's in an asylum. And we find out that she has supernatural powers where she can make people do things. Um, And she breaks out. She goes to, I think it's New Orleans and she comes across all these different, you know, characters of New Orleans and how she kind of infiltrates their lives, how she brings more color to their lives while also trying to escape the authorities. Um, I really, really liked uh, uh A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, And I just feel like she's doing this series of films where it's like, I'm taking a character and I'm going to put them out of place and we're going to see how they adjust within society while also making commentary on those who are on the periphery of society. And it was just like a fun, nice movie. I saw it at London Film Festival and it just, it it wasn't too heavy despite its subject matter. Hmm.
0: It's nice to see she follows that up well. Um, sometimes mm. when directors get plucked from quotation marks international obscurity, they end up being mm-hmm. put into movies which really are not a good fit for them whatsoever. Yeah. But the fact that she survived after the girl who walks home alone at night, I, I always remember that name poorly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: and to bring someone else entirely, but that she followed that up well. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, Vincent, number seven.
2: Well, my number seven. May have been mentioned already, um, at least in passing, um, and maybe it's a folk horror because my number seven is
3: Candyman.
2: As, ah. mm, perhaps Cliff, when you said you'd rewatched Candyman, you were referring to the ninety-two original.
3: Yeah, but then I followed it up with the sequel.
2: Fair enough. So, yeah. Watched that yesterday. 20, so twenty twenty-one's Candyman by Nierd Costa is for my money an enthralling, savage, insightful, and terrifying treatise on race, class, stratification, myth, voices, fear, and the power of stories. Um, going back to a point that was made earlier, um, Candyman is a film that has been um, attacked for being too, in massive scare quotes, woke. Um, to which I would say, to anyone who thinks there's a problem with that movie being about race and gentrification, like, um, did you see the original? It's pretty yeah. front-loaded there as well. And what's fascinating about this new one is that um, it's very much, I think, a reclaiming um, of this particular story by um, a black filmmaker, or female black filmmaker, and very much making a story about um, the sort of the, the, the clashes, the tensions between race and gender and class. Um, and the way that uh, particular areas can start out as one thing being ghettoized and then they become essentially, um, an opportunity for developers. Um, I had another, um, wonderful experience watching this movie because, um, Candyman is a film that could be just, des- um, described as doing frame analysis horror where you're watching the frame. There it is. It's, there's lots, of, you've got the mise en scène, you've got the, um, the actors on the screen and so on. And there, there is something that is wrong. Something is off. And with this particular mm. film, it's off. And reflections—you'll see something in a mirror reflection. And so I saw this in a fairly empty auditorium. And it, suddenly, at one point, I noticed this figure over in the corner. And I gl— and I. Yeah, out of the corner of my eye, someone who was standing there in the auditorium. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And it was one of the ushers just coming in to check everything was fine. And on my way out, I did pause to say, thank you for
3: enhancing the experience. That was great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Candyman is... I had that when I first saw The Exorcist. Um, in the cinema. So uh, one of the uh, security usher people whatever, their walkie-talkie went off at a really tense moment and the whole audience went, ah!
0: (laughs) The only time that's ever worked in my advantage is when the Thing remake was out and the the heating was all off in the the cinema. So it was like perfect. Better than the film actually, but... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's my number seven. Uh,
3: No, uh, Candyman is, um, yes, very good, very stylish. Um, I prefer it to the original. Mm. Uh, I don't think the original's aged that well, perhaps... Because it's, you know, Virginia Madison walking around being the white, white knight. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it It,
0: do, it does appear that, uh, later in my list. But the thing that bugged me with a lot of the reception to it was people's, well, protesting about keeping politics out of my horror. It's like, have they not it. been paying attention since 1968?
3: Oh. It, it would appear not. Well, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a bit of a surprise okay, to when
3: them. was Haxon. I think Haxon might be one of the earliest political horrors. Good point, yeah. 28? Yeah, mm. yeah it's early the 20s. Uh, so number
0: six, the last number before we take a little break in the middle for some other stuff. So Cliff.
3: Uh, yeah, okay, so do you remember um, the TV series Utopia? Do you remember Neil Maskell playing Arby, going around asking who is Jessica Hyde, where is Jessica Hyde, um, and like brutally killing anyone who refuses to cooperate? Well, he's back, he's doing it again in a film called Bull, Directed by Paul Andrew Williams, who did London to Brighton and several other great films. Uh, Neil Maskell is one of the most amazing villain or anti-heroes I can think of. He's he's such a schlubby, just lovable, cuddly teddy bear of a bloke. But fucking hell, he's brutal. Mm. He, he He will cut you from end to end. I mean, not the actor, the characters he plays. <laughs> well, yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you remember him in Kill List, even if you didn't see Utopia, yeah? Uh, so he's walking around asking where he can find someone called Aiden. Uh, one thing I didn't, uh, what slightly annoyed me about the film is that it keeps too much information from the audience that Neil Maskell's character Bull uh, knows, you know. So it, it We're following him around, not knowing why he's doing stuff, and there's no real reason narratively why we shouldn't know who Aiden is. Why they're keeping it from us? It's a bit annoying, but it's so it's so incredibly violent. It's so great. He's 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 just one of our best actors. Yeah, but you 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 wouldn't see like you know Maggie Smith or Jim Broadbent. (laughs) go around doing what he does in this film.
0: The best thing he ever did was get out of those London Cockney geezer, wise guy sort of movies. It's been great for his career, getting out of that scene.
3: Mm, yeah, there was one called Piggy, where he played like the older brother of some guy who gets pulled into some fascist group or something like that. I, was, uh, I mean, he's the best thing in it, but it's such a terrible film. In, like Green straight um, as
0: well, that's one stands out.
3: Oh, was he? I've never seen like, for, any of those football yeah, games films. Terrible. Because, I mean, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in
0: what's probably going to be the biggest case of tonal whiplash for the whole show here? Uh, from that to my number six, which is probably the most divisive thing so far. Uh, where's Anderson's The French Dispatch. Uh, I have cut. Co-
3: no one get there. No one get their hands cut off in that. Not. That, I, don't, I, don't,
0: I don't know, they might actually. Yeah. 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 It's a weird, like, torn in itself of being a total whimsy overlord with really little weird bits of violence in between it. Um, it's a portmanteau movie, an anthology movie, and true to the form of them, they're not all great. Um the first what this movie is basically here on the credit of the first one. Um I, think, I always forget me Mexican accesses. Benicio del Toro, is it?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um as the artist, a struggling tortured artist in prison. Um the middle bit has Timothy Chalamet in it, um, about a student revolution. And the last bit uh, features Jeffrey Wright as a, well, involved in a kidnapping of a police chief's son. Off the credit of the first one, it deserves to be here entirely, but say what you will about Wes Anderson. Sometimes his whimsy is too much and it's suffocating. Sometimes it's pitch perfect. And sometimes it's just everything, all the cards fall into place. And he communicates what he does and the way well, only he can. Um, sometimes, I mean, Auteur Theory is, is largely nonsense because it puts too much on the director's shoulders, really. But there's very few movies out there where this one person could make it and this one person alone. And this is Wes Anderson, at his most Wes Anderson. So that might rub some people the wrong way, but when it's done well, it's just great. And that's my number six. So, uh, probably another hard segue here, but, uh, great, and your number six.
1: Uh in another tonal shift. Um uh, my uh number six is Censor. Um uh, by uh directed by Prano Bailey Bond. Um that does come it,
2: up in my list later on, just so as you know.
1: It uh it follows Enid as she works for the British Board of Film classification during uh the height of the video nasty um epidemic or whatever Britain was going through at the time. And uh, she's known to be very strict, um, although she did pass a film that eventually went on to like influence someone to kill kids. Um, so in her past, her sister has disappeared and has been called legally dead. Um, and she reviews a new film by a director who specifically asks for her to review to screen it and she thinks she sees her sister. So she begins to um investigate and from there her mental health begins to deteriorate. Um, I chose it because I really enjoyed the setting. I even though I'm not really a big fan of, like, the 80s horror. I am fascinated by video nasties and people's reactions to them. Um, And so I really enjoyed the setting. Um, I really enjoyed the kind of subtext of mental health and grief. What I didn't like about it, however, and maybe this is because I've got ADHD, but the way the ending just cuts all of a sudden, I was like, shit, have I missed something? Did I, like, did my attention just go and I completely forgot... So I think I'm going to have to give it another rewatch, but I did really, really enjoy it anyway.
3: Yeah. I really want to rewatch it because I <laughs> didn't enjoy it that much. Okay. Um, I, I, I just think it kind of falls apart too much in the end. In, and in a way that is narratively similar to St. Maud, which came out the year before, mm-hmm. but not as impressively done. Um, I do like, I, visually it looks great. It's, it's um, a great subject matter very close to my heart and all that uh the interesting thing about sensor is they were like teasing and trailing and that uh, uh, for months before it came out and it wasn't put off because of the pandemic or anything i don't think it was they they, they had the certain sound front cover about three months before it came out um there was posters up in uh, around the place billboards for you know months before, back back when uh, i went to see spiral from the book of saw and on the way i walked past a billboard on a traffic island for censor and that was back in may Mm. and it didn't come out till august so i don't know why they were giving it such a long you know uh promotional lead much longer than probably any film of the year it's so weird
0: Uh, kim newman's one of the producers maybe he's got good connections i don't know
3: (laughs) (laughs) is that is it a good idea to trail something that far in advance before you can actually see it
0: I don't know, I think it got a good run, and I don't know, I can't justify that in any way. But it did a good job, it's, it made a much bigger impact than a film like that I ever would otherwise.
3: Yeah, maybe that's what it was, maybe it did. I don't know what the box office was or anything, I don't check that, but um,
0: mm.
3: yeah, maybe maybe it was an experiment and maybe it was. Uh, so, uh,
0: Vincent, number six.
3: My number six
2: is The Green Knight. Hmm. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, the latest film from David Lowery. It is, this is an interesting one because, um, this was originally going to get a general, I believe, theatrical release, but ended up getting a very limited one, um, and went, st- most people, I think, who could see it would have seen it on, uh, streaming, which is how I saw it. Um, but I actually decided to include it in this because, um, I was massively impressed, and I feel that if I'd seen it in a cinema, I w- might have been even more impressed. So um, I give it that sort of extra credit, I suppose, because The Green Knight is a magnificent, mesmerizing, beautiful, suffusive and dreamlike adult fantasy of choice, destiny, honor and the making of myth. It is genuinely unlike most other films that I have seen, certainly this year. Um, yeah, It felt like nothing else. Um, there were scenes in it that didn't actually, you know, necessarily make sense. It's like, wait, are those giants? Why, why, why are they giants? I don't care, but they're amazing. And the the general, I mean, the central premise of um, Gawain, um, Gawain, sorry, in this context, and Gawain, um, who you know steps up to uh, accept the challenge of this enormous green knight to um, you know, cut his head off, and then. Uh, when the Green Knight can pick up his head and walk off again and says, yeah, well, see you in a year's time and I'll be cutting your head off. And this journey of self-discovery and wider discovery. And uh, there are so many elements of the Green Knight that kind of rub against each other, but quite honestly don't necessarily go as far as anything as as certain as meaning. So it is very much, I think, uh, something, that's why I describe it as suffusive. I felt it very much a film that was penetrating me, um, not in that way, um, <laughs> but in a way that, yeah, it left me feeling very strange and very impressed. And hey, anything that can produce that many kind of contradictory feelings um, is doing something right in my book. Hello folks,
5: it's Graham here. I know I'm normally on these end-of-year recordings, but I couldn't make it this year. However, I felt that you just could not do without my bafflingly perverse choices for best films of the year, and so I'm bringing them to you right now. Quick note to note, some of my favourite home releases of the year. I mean, anyone who knows me will probably have predicted that the fact that there is such a thing as a Criterion UK blu Ray of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me means the race for my favourite uh, home release of the year is going to be pretty easily won by that. But I also greatly enjoyed the BFI's reissue of the almost completely forgotten 60s psychosexual thriller I Start Counting* which came with some of the most eclectic and well-chosen extras of the year. But without further ado, let's get into the top 10 all UK cinema releases in the year 2021, or, you know, streaming. Um, it's the future now. Number 10 is is Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, which is almost cheating. Of course, a psychedelic folk horror starring Rick Shea Smith directed by Ben Wheatley is going to have a better shot of getting in my top ten than basically anything else. But what this film shows is how much Wheatley has grown as a filmmaker compared to the similarly marginal eccentric uh, world of A Field in England, which it is comparable to. Uh, I liked A Field in England a lot, but This is a much more polished, much more thematically rich and overall more successful work. Scabia too. And number nine is Petite Maman, another film made during the pandemic, this time by Celine Sciamma, which begins with one of those great Touch of Evil-style opening tracking shots, albeit done on a much more domestic and low-key register than Orson Welles would ever do it. This is a really beautiful, small, low-key film, whose mantra during production was apparently, ''Do what Miyazaki would have done.'' I can see that influence, but the result has a kind of stillness and grace that could be nobody else but Seema. At number 8, it's Emma Seligman's debut feature, Shiver Baby, which, like all great comedies, I think grows a bit in your mind. I liked it when I first saw it. The further away I get from it, the more I love it, and I passionately want to see it again. Its star, Rachel Sennett, has the best glower in cinema since Peter Capaldi made his screen debut. And number seven, it's a film that I think a lot of people missed, Sweet Thing by Alexandra Rockwell, who was briefly a name to conjure with during the early 90s, but fell from favour a bit afterwards. This is a staggering return to form, made for a very low budget and starring the director's own children, all of whom are extraordinarily natural and affecting. The film, about a group of kids running away from their alcoholic parents, contains about every horrible thing you could think of that might happen to kids in that situation, and yet the sheer joy and verve and passion of the filmmaking means it is anything but a struggle to watch. At number six, it's Annette. Leos Carax's grand, slightly overreaching, but in a way that you can't help but love musical based on 42 original songs by the veteran glam pop band Sparks. This features uh, three of the, my favourite performances of the year from Adam Driver, Marion Cotillard and Simon Helberg and four of my favourite performances if you include that extraordinary puppet. Number five is Nomadland and, you know, during the long period that we've been separated from the new release cycle by lockdowns and we haven't been at the forefront of cinema debate, I think we've all forgotten the way that film discussions online can be really stupid and Chloe Zhao has been at the sharp end of some of those this year going from The Hero We All Need when she became the second woman ever to win Best Director Oscar to The Villain We All Need. Hated when she made a pretty dull, by all accounts, Marvel film, none of which has made Nomad Land any less compelling and dreamy. A film which finds the beauty in poverty without smudging away its harsher realities and earned Francis McDormand a justifiable third Oscar. And number four, it's The Green Knight, which, I mean, I've said I was looking forward to a lot of these films, and I was looking forward to The Green Knight, but I remember there was a point in it where this clicked so dramatically for me and I realised that this was not just good, it was brilliant and it was, uh, as few spoilers as possible, but it's the bit with Joel Edgerton when I realised how seriously Lowry was taking the themes of his story and how carefully he had studied the mythology surrounding this uh, rather obscure but very rewarding Arthurian tale, uh, Dev Patel for Pope as ever. At number three, it's another film I'd like to shine a bit of a spotlight on. It's Some Kind of Heaven, a remarkable documentary about the villages. A whole town in Florida that has been built as a retirement home. It has shops, golf courses, bowling alleys, anything else you would expect to find in a mid-sized American town except for young people. Uh, it is a very, very strange watch. Uh, you may be reminded of a sort of reverse Logan's run where it's the young who vanished rather than the old, and the director gets some um, considerable amount of humour I would say out of the sheer weirdness of life in the villages. But there is also a real compassion too that I didn't expect, I liked it a lot. Number two, it's the French Dispatch. And, you know, I think everyone's had their hooray cinemas back moment, you know, uh, this year. Maybe it was the hearing the crowd scream during a horror film. Maybe it was hearing the crowd cheer during a blockbuster. But for me, nothing felt like a hit of pure oxygen more than being sat watching Wes Anderson at his Wes anderson in this remarkably detailed, remarkably star-studded and remarkably enjoyable comedy. Just before I get to number one, quick look at some of the films that just missed out. There was a late-breaking spree of blockbusters that made me think, yes, maybe I'm going to enjoy watching blockbusters again. Uh, June, No Time to Die, West Side Story, all of them thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, the Apple TV documentary, The World's a Little Blurry, about Billie Eilish is far more than the fans-only affair that you might expect. I also enjoyed Ham on Rye, Supernova and Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, uh, as for one thing I didn't enjoy. Even in a year which started with me getting a recent Woody Allen film to watch for the Geek Show, I don't think I've seen anything that pissed me off more than Emerald Fennell's Oscar win, Oscar-winning, promising young woman—a remarkable display of why you shouldn't get extremely posh white English women to write and direct your supposed feminist rallying cries. Uh, the ending is the most out of touch thing I've seen in years. N- no rooms were read during the making of this film. So just to run down before I get to my number one, number 10 is In the Earth, number 9 is Petit Maman, number 8 is Shiver Baby, number 7 is Sweet Thing, Number six, Annette. Number five is Nomadland. Number four, The Green Knight. Three, Some Kind of Heaven. Two, The French Dispatch, and finally, my number one is Absolutely Summer of Soul, a documentary by Questlove, the drummer in The Roots, uh, which has a fair amount to do. I mean, as debut film projects go, he is biting off a lot here, and he chews it all magnificently. I don't know how you can chew magnificently, and I should have thought about that metaphor a bit more, but here we go. It has to be a history of the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. It has to work as a concert film for people who just want to turn up and watch David Ruffin, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, The Fifth Dimension, Nina Simone, all of the incredible acts who are on show here. And it also has to explain why this remarkable event fell so completely from the popular consciousness after it happened. And the miracle of it is... It does all of these things. If you just want to go and luxuriate in some of the greatest music ever created, it'll do that. If you want a political film about race in America, it'll do that. It really is quite the miraculous project, and I am just overjoyed that it exists. I got the chance to see it on the big screen. It's the kind of thing that could make you think that everything is going to be fine. And that's in 2021. So that's been my top 10. I'll leave you to the capable hands of my co-hosts and I'll see you in 2022 with more Directors Lottery.
0: Right. Um, I think the best way to sort of segue out of all this positive speaking is to talk about some of the absolute... Drek, the bottom feeders of the year the worst of the worst and sorry if you like them but you know sometimes no sometimes you're just wrong <laughs> so a cliff bad stuff awful stuff
3: uh the worst film i've seen this year the worst new release i've seen this year is a film called the bloodhound which arrow video it's uh... oh you say seen... i didn't yeah. take long <laughs> yeah, it wasn't bad. Not, uh, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's fucking awful. I can understand you, that. You, yeah. You've just done a whole podcast slagging off Mumblecore, and the Bloodhound is Mumblecore. It's a hipster version of The Fall of the House of Usher. Oh. Uh, featuring... That sounds yeah. painful. Oh, it's horrible. It's, it's basically a two-hander. And on the one hand, you've got uh, one of the most fucking charmless ponces i've ever seen in the usher role and on the other hand you got the wettest blanket i've ever come across in the narrator hero role uh it, i just i, I hate low-budget us indie filmmaking i just think it's awful <laughs> it looks bad they're annoying oh it's, oh, it's so bad it's, it's <laughs> terrible um I don't know if anyone saw Crypto Zoo that movie made a big fuss I about. I
1: did, yeah, I saw that. What did you think? I mean, okay. I, 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 I felt
3: like I shouldn't hate it because, like, you know, it's <laughs> technically very clever.
1: Oh, it's um, so boring. So I had to write a review for it. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> I just kept – I watched perhaps the first half hour and then I skipped forward about 15 minutes and just got the general gist because I was like, I <laughs> am bored out of my skull. Yeah, um, there's something yeah. about
3: these, uh, again, American indie cartoons that it's just so hipsterish and the mm. voice acting is terrible and everything goes so slowly and it, it, all the scenes run on far too long. Do I want to talk about... Bloodthirsty, as well, a Canadian werewolf movie. How dare you, sir!
2: <laughs> Seriously? Bloodthirsty was magnificent. Oh, it didn't so quite bad. make my
3: top 12, but I thought it was awesome. Hmm. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not awesome. It, it, it's, it's, there's a character in it called Kessler because it wants to be American Wealth in London. There's a there's a place in it called East Proctor because it wants to be American Wealth in London. It is not American Wealth in London. It's about fucking... No, like, it's, well, it's actually it's Billy, no, it's Eilish, better. Billy oh. type. What? Better than American Wealth in London? You mental. Right,
0: okay, I'm Controversial religious. opinions are all coming out here. <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: funny, isn't it?
2: It's the ones that we don't like that prompt them more. The stronger responses. Oh, yes. No, I'm surprised
0: you've seen any, either of you have seen any of these, but there you go. Fight um, first. I'll pick up that baton of hate. Um, I, I'm a glutton, because I always watch the new Netflix movie thinking, oh, this one will be good, this one will be good, but they're never good. It's not a horror movie. It's an animated movie called America, the motion picture, and it just gave me a rage headache. It's... Um, two hours of leech- reaching for the lowest possible hanging fruit. Um, it's sub Family Guy humor, and what makes it worse is they probably they cancelled two or three amazing series of a beloved fan base to finance this stupid vanity project that basically says America is broken. In watch what could be done in about twenty minutes, it's just an infantile. What is, it? What is um, it? America the Motion Picture. It's it's got Chan and Tate in it and Killer Mike's in it and I can't remember anybody else honestly because it must have been very very expensive though it looks very expensive
3: but what is it a,
0: a comedy about America being born and a okay. uh, war between the Brits and America and e- it, I you're making me remember stuff don't wanna <laughs> 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 it, it's just bad <laughs> It's not as bad as some of the horror movies from previous years where you think oh this is the Netflix horror movie that's gonna be good I remember one from um, last year
3: about um don't uh, don't, uh, don't say the perfection was bad no, I wasn't I didn't
0: like that but it wasn't like really bad it was a Mexican one about um the only way to defeat a possessed person is to get another possessed person and just see what happens uh, I can't remember what that one was called um,
3: is that anything for Jackson
0: no no
3: is that that no. I haven't seen anything Jackson. I don't know if it's that. Okay. But uh, yeah, the other one is
0: the one which is probably going to annoy people. And I'm probably being dramatic in including this in the bottom of the year. But if this was done for 200 quid in the 1990s, I think it'd be amazing. But the fact that it's been done for millions and millions now rubs me the wrong way. And I can't quite understand why. It's Malignant from James Wan. Did not like it. Um, at all. Oh. But I can understand why people do. I don't know. It's just something really odd about seeing this obvious grime done with like a huge budget. It just I don't know, there's something morally wrong there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought Malignant was, was fine, it was completely bonkers, but I enjoyed that. Um you know, I've seen better, but I've seen a lot worse.
0: Oh yeah, I I just I think I don't I just don't like James Wan, honestly. Because <laughs> uh, I used to go out to the cinema to see every horror movie and this was at the era when everything was haunted houses. And when you've seen enough of those you start seeing the mortars and the engine working. And apropos of nothing, really, I think it was just the one which broke my back and thought, I can't watch this anymore. I just can't watch this same movie anymore, was The Conjuring, the first Conjuring movie. <laughs> and I think I've just held it against him since then. Not, it's not his fault, it's just... <laughs> I'm being daft, you know. And I really should credit him for trying to be something different, but, you know, I'm not gonna. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Hoping i am not offended you all too much by including that um, <laughs> <laughs> there. But, uh, Grain, what were your worst of the year?
1: Oh, God, where do I start? Um, uh, okay. The worst, the absolute worst one that I couldn't... E- I had to write a review for it and I couldn't even finish it. That's how bad it was. Um, and I wrote that in my review. Um, is The Last or Last Survivors. Um it is directed by drew millry and it stars alicia Silverstone and stephen moyer uh stephen moyer is um he he has his son kind of in the wilderness and he's told him that the world has ended and that if he comes across anybody else um there's something wrong with them and he needs to kill them straight away with no questions um and of course, the son begins to become a bit more curious as he gets older and becomes a young man. And he comes across people and realizes that his dad was perhaps not telling the truth. Um, awful, absolutely awful. Stephen Moyer is just the worst actor I've ever seen <laughs> in my whole entire life. He needs to reevaluate his life. Um, oh, wow. It's that bad. That, that's that's,
0: that's yeah. biting. <laughs>
1: Um, another film that i absolutely hated was things heard and seen which is uh on netflix i believe just drivel for like it came across to me for like middle-aged women who like reading like catherine cookson novels and they were like we'll put a little bit of supernatural spin on this and it was just drivel are you judging the women who
2: read these books
1: no i'm not because obviously there's an audience for them (laughs) however do not market a horror film. Like it's just it's not a horror film, it's just bull crap. Um and I'm I'm not like a gatekeeper of horror by any means, but this no, it should not be in the horror section. Yeah. Um and then my my other one that I'm gonna finish on because I could go all fucking night, although special mention to Lamb and Antlers. <laughs> awful films. No, no, no. Awful, oh, awful films. Like Hello Um No, my other one is Fear Street. Oh yeah. all three? In the bin. All three in the bin right now, especially the third one. Oh, that was my (laughs) favourite. In the bin. In the bin, kicked out, not even recycling, in the trash. Okay. I hated it. Fair enough. And it was, you know what it was? It was the Irish accent. Yeah,
0: that was pretty. I was like,
1: like, why are you placing Irish people in a situation where they have never been? And at at that time, Irish people were being persecuted and were being murdered. They were not pilgrims. And you
0: know, yeah. in America, <laughs> it's kind of the English equivalent of American saying, oh, "I can do an English accent," and it's always the same, yeah. very, very strong posh accent. And yeah. Irish is the same; it's always the same, Irish yeah. sort of stereotype accent.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, yeah, that that is a fair point. I get. I wonder if there's there's a sense of well, we know there was this particular kind of accent at this point, and <clears> we don't <throat> really know how to do it, so we'll go for Irish. That'll sound not quite yeah. English.
1: That's old-timey, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. So I take that point. I liked the Fear Street trilogy, um, but uh, I take your point. So,
0: Vincent, worst of the year?
2: Um, well, I said that I saw, you know, a lot of five-star films this year. I also saw a few one-star films. Um, you know, I've, ju- I've got five, which I'm just going to run through quickly. Um, one of them was a direct-to-Netflix mistake called Thunder Force, um, which looked fun, you know, Melissa McCarthy and, nah. um, Octavia Spencer, you know, they, they've got, you know, that sounds like a great pairing. Um, but what we end up with is what could have been a decent buddy comedy that's very clumsily bolted onto an utterly inert attempt at a superhero action film. And as a result, you're left with talented people in a complete comedy and action vacuum. So that was, was a dirge. Um, at the near the beginning of the year, I, uh, the rest of these i will say i watched all of these either at a festival or for review purposes so you know i made my way through them and uh, so i could be as scathing as possible i saw the new the rebooted version of wrong turn which i thought was atrocious and i got and there was a point there's a point right towards the end of this movie when uh, when two of the characters say so let's watch a movie tonight maybe something about inbred cannibals and I was like, yes, please, can we have the inbred cannibals? <laughs> uh, enough of this. Um, so yeah, wrong turn. Hated it. Then there was something I saw, this Cockney Geezer nonsense malarkey bollocks called Nemesis, which when I was looking over my list was like, Nemesis, what was that? I don't even remember it. Oh God, it was that. Uh, no, 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 get away from me. Oh, so yeah, a uh, dear. I was reminded of that. Then there was something called Midnight in the Switchgrass, which tried to be like an interesting, <laughs> and it was an interesting, sort of serial killer thriller. And the weird thing is, this was one of two Megan Fox vehicles that came out this year, and one of two um, Bruce Willis vehicles that came out this year. Now, both of the ones with Bruce Willis, terrible. So there was... Um, I've got the name of the other one he did the sci- some weird sci-fi yeah, I alien that one, yeah. Yeah, thing, yeah. And he was, was in Midnight Fortress? in the Switch. No, it wasn't Fortress. Because he did that um, I think. Yeah, but um, no, but Midnight in the Switchgrass absolutely wretched. And the shame is, all something that came out on Netflix this year, which also starred Megan Fox and was surprisingly good, is Till Death, which I thought worked really well. So um, it shows that you know Megan Fox gets a bad rep burn a bad rap but it was totally unfair she's perfectly capable of, of being in good stuff but when but, but Midnight in the Switchgrass was a perfect example of well we'll just use her to look sexy and kind of sassy and and along the way have all this other stuff which is totally devoid of tension totally devoid of interest totally devoid of imagination so yeah that was wretched um oh yeah and then the other one was Demonic Demonic oh
0: yeah that wound a lot yeah. of people up. that one. <sighs>
2: Hopeless, filled with endless explanations, hideous animation, so obvious, so clunky, and such a disappointment from Neil Blomkamp, who had such a promising start to his career with District 9 and has essentially never recaptured that. It's so, starting yeah. to look
0: like a bit of a fluke District 9. Indeed.
2: The yeah, demonic... Ugh. So I'm not sure which of those was the worst... Um, but I would probably say Wrong Turn probably made me the most angry because, and after it, I rewatched the original Wrong Turn. It was like, yes, that was enjoyable,
0: and that's probably why I hated this new version so much. <laughs> so, uh, looping back around to something a bit more positive, a favourite like home video releases of the year. Oh, um, we'll yeah. keep this at two because it's it's been a bit of a banner year for new things coming out. Um, Cliff.
3: What's this coming up here? It's Irreversible. Uh, So this is the indicator release of Irreversible. Um, It's a film that... Well, I'm glad that, for starters, I've been able to upgrade my previous uh, Umbrella Entertainment Blu-ray, which was terrible. It it was just like the DVD ported over to Blu-ray and they called it a Blu-ray. So it's the proper restoration But and it's got nice. It's got nice um, extras on it. But the main thing that makes it so, so uh, unmissable is that it's got the uh, new release, the straight cut, the new edit of it, in Mm. which uh, the film is uh, the scenes are uh, restructured in the correct chronological order. (laughs) Because one of the problems I've always had it with Irreversible is that I don't think it works played back to front or front to back, whatever way. You know what I mean? I don't think it works as a back to front film. It is front-loaded with all the good stuff um, and at the end it, the implication is that what happened to um, Monica Bellucci's character is all the worst all the worst because she was pregnant which I have a problem with that um, whereas if you show if you play it in chronological order and Jehovah's being pregnant is part of the thing then you know that's not you don't have that problem and um, it's just, and then you've got the more exciting stuff at the end, which is how films should be. Mm. Let's face it, it's it's a great, it's a well-made film, it's very well-made film. It's great, and it works better in chronological order. Um, plus, indicators big box uh, Blu-rays smell really nice, <laughs> and I don't know why that is. But bonus points. <laughs> it's not a physical release, but it's something that wasn't really a proper release. Uh, Shameless put it out on their website. It's a documentary called, uh, called Searching for Cannibal Holocaust. And it's directed by Callum Waddle. Now, I've seen and read loads about Cannibal Holocaust over the years. This is special. It's proper investigative journalism. He goes to Colombia. He speaks to people who played the tribes people in the film, which I've never seen done before. Um, he looks into uh, a mysterious guy who helped with the production of both Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox and turns out to be a really dodgy bloke. Um, it, you know, the, the tagline for Snuff was uh, this uh, film that could only have been made in South America where life is cheap. Watching this documentary, you really feel like, yes, that is that is asserted. The, the cannibal Holocaust could only have been made in South America where life is cheap. Um, plus, uh, Callum Waddle's translator, uh, I think she's called Tara, is really good fun. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very entertaining and it's great, and it's like two quid on Shameless's website, and it's brilliant. Um, my two, uh, the first one, uh, I think it's been mentioned on the show,
0: yeah, it has when we talk about the medium, uh, it is a second site release of Lake Mongo.
1: Ah, uh, that was my which... one. <laughs>
0: Um, when you discover a movie and you think, where's this been all my life? And then it's not just some crummy pound shop DVD. It's been given this absolutely gorgeous release. I mean, Second Sight, they've really had a... They've just gone from strength to strength with the releases. I'm looking forward to the Sensor one, I think, that they're putting out in January too. But uh, yeah, for me, their highlight of this year was uh, second it was um, Lake Mungo. Amazing, amazing release! And the other one, huge monster release from Arrow Video, Shaw Brothers: The Collection Volume One. Because at my heart, I'm a Shaw Brothers nerd, so when you release a big thing like that, obviously I'm going to love it.
3: I want them to put out the. I want them to put out Shaw Brothers' uh, Black Magic Horror movies, though, rather than their <laughs> Kung Fu films. Uh, uh,
0: yeah, it's a volume one, so obviously going to have a series of these. So if they do a horror one for number two, I'll be all over that one as well because Shaw Brothers horror movies and uh, something else. <laughs>
3: yeah. And then a Golden Harvest collection next please.
0: A grain yeah, yeah, two picks upon video from this year.
1: I I don't follow home releases. I'm just it just doesn't come onto my radar. Um, so my only one was Lake Mungo because that was the only one that I really cared about because I care so much for Lake Mungo. Um, it's probably my favourite found footage film, Close to Wreck. Um, it, it, the first time I watched it, completely unexpected. And I feel like, previous to this release, it had gone under a lot of people's radars. and Which I feel like Australian horror does a yeah. lot. Um, and so, when uh, Second Sight released this, it really picked up on people's radars. And that's that's why... I, it, it's so special to me because I think that it brought it into a lot of people's universe and they got to see the greatness that is Lake Mungo.
0: Um, it's one of the most shocking moments of any film I've seen this year that when they find the fawn, it, it just punches you
1: hmm.
0: right in the windbag and it, you don't yeah. know how to react to it. It's truly shocking.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen the film about five times and it's, the jump scare gets me every time. Mm,
0: skin crawling. If you haven't seen it, definitely yeah. definitely watch it. It's an amazing Yeah it say like this out there in the world so rounding us out uh vincent well to the air. like
2: um Igrain, i don't really follow home <clears throat> releases at all with the um with all of these streaming services i am less and less uh, feel less and less need to own physical media though i understand the desire to do so so um i've fudged this slightly and i've gone with an alternative version um, of something previously released that was released onto streaming and subsequently on hard media, which is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Now, I enjoy the um, the DCEU. I think they have a lot of problems. Um, but uh, Justice League in 2017 was extremely problematic, both in terms of as a movie in its own right and then when you find out about its production um, problems as well. Um, so to have, and there's a whole lot of um, annoying discourse around um, Zack Snyder's Justice League, and a lot of the mm-hmm. fans are highly problematic as well. But taking the film on its own merits, I think it works. I think it is a properly grand-scale, deeply portentous, but not always in a bad way, um, and well-measured um, superhero team-up. I think it has a genuine sense of scale, a genuine sense of impact. And while it, um, you know, Zack Snyder is a director who's never going to work for everybody, but I've actually kind of always liked his style because it is so overtly stylish. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier about, it was mentioned that the, you know, the auteur theory is ultimately nonsense. Um, but at the same time, directors do work as an interesting sort of reading strategy Um, For the film fans, and I think that Zack Snyder's Justice League is a perfect example of well, that's kind of what happens when a director gets to do things their way. Take it or leave it. (coughs) That is fine. Um,
0: I will say, Lord Army of the Dead did annoy me a little bit, but you know. And my other pick
2: um, is actually something I haven't seen yet. I am. We're recording this just before Christmas, and I may well receive it for Christmas. Um, (laughs) So. um, Indeed, fingers crossed. Um, But I'm very glad that it exists and that um, I could get, I can get hold of it and other people get hold of it. And it is the Bong Joon Ho collection. Yes. Um, Now, Bong Joon Ho has been, you know, prominent, was known to um, fans of Korean cinema for a while and then, of course, made history by becoming the first Korean filmmaker to win the Oscar for Best Director and Parasite winning Best Picture. Um, the first non-English language film to do so Um, and I have seen a number of Bong Joon-ho films, I've seen Parasite, Snowpiercer um, The Host um, and this box set does come with those three as well as the black and white feature of Parasite but it also has Barking Dogs Never Bite, Memories of Murder and Mother, none of which I've seen Mm. but I've liked everything I've seen by Bong Joon-ho as well as pretty well every Korean film I've seen I thought was brilliant and yeah, I am very pleased that this collection is out there and I hope many people um, get to see it. I persuaded my mother recently to watch Parasite when it was on television and she asked me afterwards, she said she enjoyed it, but she did ask me, is this typical of Korean films that they start off one way and then partway through they go really dark? Yes. To which I said, well, no, sometimes they start really dark <laughs> and suggested she check out Old Boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, a bit of a korean movie hipster i've been a fan of him since uh, memories of murder yes, came same. out he completely knocked me socks off that one but yeah he's nice to see him well it's not nice he, he's my toy i don't want everybody else liking my toy <laughs> being a hipster about No, me.
3: you want fucking <laughs> let's picture <us. laughs> he's not
0: cool
4: anymore i can't like him anymore <laughs> I'm, I'm joking of course um hello this is gav smith from the my favorite film podcast I've been working with The Geek Show for a little while. I'm going to be appearing on episodes of Pop Scream and the Director's Lottery in the coming future. So, this is my quick rundown of my top 10 favourite films for 2021. What a year for cinema 2021 has been. What with the pandemic, cinemas being closed, that type of stuff, it's been crazy. I got most of my content at home, which takes us perfectly to my first favourite film of the year. Don't know why I'm talking like that, but I am. The first favourite film of the year would be Rare and the Last Dragon, which you would find on Disney. It went up on Premiere Access first, later on, free to view as long as you had a Disney Plus subscription. Rare and the Last Dragon is a wonderful Disney animation. It's taking away from all the normal fairy tale stuff that Disney do and into something completely new. It's about a world where dragons have fought for the rights of humans and, unfortunately, lost. And in the process, killed off most of their population, to be honest. They've all been turned to stone. Rhea finds the last of the dragon gems and brings back the last dragon in order to try and save the world and, well, her father and family and everybody else. It's actually a great film. I honestly think that if you want a good sit-down family film with a little bit of heart to it, you can't beat Disney, and Rhea and the Last Dragon is one of those. My number nine is a bit of an odd one. Um, It appeared... On Amazon Prime, I don't think it got a cinema release. Based on the hit musical, uh, it's the film version of Everybody's Talking About Jamie. I do like a musical, I have to admit. And this one is a fantastic one, uh, if only for Richard E. Grant in drag. It's just something that everyone should see. It's about a young boy coming to terms with his sexuality and how he wants to wear a dress for the prom. He's taught how to be a drag queen by Richard E. Grant and that pretty much is the film story in a nutshell some great songs in it it's well worth seeing my number eight back to Disney I'm afraid sorry another one another one of the Disney films that didn't get a cinema release it ended up on premiere access and then later on free through Disney plus and that is the live action version of Cruella the prequel that nobody knew they wanted didn't think we needed but actually it's bloody brilliant I have to admit uh, Emma Stone a fantastic take on a Cruella de Vil. Certainly up there with Glenn Close's version in the other live-action versions. It tells the early life of Cruella and how she became what we see now. Number seven, Palm Springs. This is Groundhog Day, but not quite Groundhog Day. Take Groundhog Day and take all the great ideas that it had and then put it in a different place completely. We're not at Christmas and we're not just talking about one person. We have got the same day over and over again. In a time loop type thing. Ah, it's it. Ah, I don't know. There's a lot to this one. It's really funny. It's got some fantastic moments. And it's well worth a watch. Number six. Another one that didn't make it to a cinema release. But I'm going to mention it anyway. Red Notice. I don't know what I can say about Red Notice. Other than we've got Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. In a heist action adventure comedy. If that doesn't do it for you. I really don't know what will. Number five, slightly newer. In fact, probably one of the newest ones on my list. um, Denny Villeneuve's Dune. Been waiting for it for a long time. Been waiting for someone to make a decent version of the Dune film. We won't mention the other version at all. Um, And this is a brilliant version of Dune. It has to be said. He's decided not to cover the entire book. We're just covering about half of the first book here of June. Really hope they do a sequel because this is absolutely brilliant. It's beautiful. It does everything that I wanted from a June film all through my life. My number four Zack Snyder's Justice League. Okay, I know. There's loads of controversy about Justice League. What Joss Whedon did to Justice League doesn't deserve to be even talked about, but what Zack Snyder's done here in making his four-hour epic is just made something brilliant. Um, I've always loved Batman, I've always loved Superman, and to see the two of them together in this film in the way they are, it's just fantastic. This is the best version of Justice League out there. I honestly think it's well worth sitting and watching it for the four hours that it is on, okay? Okay. If you haven't seen Zack Snyder's version of Justice League, you haven't seen Justice League. My number three, and this one I had to think about long and hard, because my number two and number three, they're so close in my mind, Um, but number three I've gone for, The Mitchells versus The Machines, which you will find on Netflix. This is brilliant. It's a brilliant mix of 2D and 3D animation, telling the story of, well, essentially it's a zombie apocalypse, but. Instead of zombies, it's robots. The Mitchells are a family who are traveling across cross-country to get their daughter to university when the robo apocalypse the let's call it, breaks out and they have to fight against machines in order to get themselves, well, to freedom. And it's just fantastic, if only for the giant Furby. There you go. Number two, the one that I could possibly put number three at a push as well. Instead of Mitchells and Mitchells could be number two, I've gone with Free Guy Now whether it's because this was the first film I saw of 2021 in a cinema Yeah I actually went to the cinema To see this one Um, Free Guy is Ryan Reynolds Showing us how to really Make a funny film Um, He is admittedly playing Deadpool But you know what His Deadpool persona is fantastic This is a great film about virtual reality And computer games and just Yeah If you haven't seen it, watch it, it's funny My number one, I have to go with this one because it's the only film that you could possibly put a number one for 2021, and I don't care what anybody else says. I know lots of other films being bandied around as being the greatest films of 2021, but in my book, it had to be Bond, James Bond. No time to die. We waited for it and waited for it for so long, so we finally got it, and wow, it blew me away. This was a long film, it has to be said. The Longest Bond Date, but I'm a Bond fan, always have been. This one wraps up Daniel Craig's tenure as James Bond absolutely fantastically. It brings together all of the loose ends from the previous Bond films. Oh, sorry, the previous Daniel Craig Bond films. And just gives us something that just works on every level. It's sad, it's loving, it's got all the typical Bond stuff that you would expect. It's got action, it's got venture. Yeah, it's just, yeah... I can't say much more about it. If you haven't seen it yet, go and see The Bond. It'll be out. It's out to stream, I believe, before Christmas. So, you know, it's probably worthwhile just watching on streaming now. But it looks much better on the big screen. Right. So that is my top ten movies of 2021. So that was Rare and the Last Dragon. Everyone's talking about Jamie. Cruella. Palm Springs. Red Notice. June, Zack Snyder's Justice League. The Mitchells vs. the Machines. Free Guy. And, of course, No Time to Die. I have to say, there are five films that I am really waiting for. And I haven't had a chance at the time of recording this. And it could change my list completely. And those five films are Ghostbusters Afterlife. I've been a fan of Ghostbusters since back in the 80s when Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd first appeared on my screen. What the new one's like, I don't know, but it looks like a cross between what I expect from Ghostbusters and Stranger Things. So, hey, it can't be all bad. Disney's Encanto, which, again, looks really good. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Ah, it's got to be good, hasn't it? The Matrix Resurrections is coming towards the end of the year. That looks fantastic as well. And I should have seen it by now, but I haven't. Last Night in Soho looks like it's going to be a fantastic film. And... At the time of recording this, still haven't seen it, but hoping to see it before Christmas. West Side Story, Steven Spielberg, doing one of the greatest musicals ever. Based on one of the greatest Shakespeare players ever. <sighs> Got to be good. Can't wait for West Side Story. Those ones are my, ones that could possibly change my top ten complete. We were then asked to look at best home video. Right, my best home video choices, to be honest, it's quite short. Um, one that blew me away completely was Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. It is a wonderful story. It is a Japanese story. It's one that I reviewed for The Geek Show. So if you want to look at my review, go and have a look. It's a fantastic film. It has to be seen. It cannot be explained. Find it. Watch it. My next one, it's a bit of an odd choice. It's Rocky IV. Rocky vs. Drago. The Ultimate Cut. This one kind of popped up on um, video. It's really great. This is a new cut of Rocky IV. It gets rid of some of the well, the rubbish that was in there, like Polly's robot, for one thing, and gives us something that's completely different. It rounds off some of the characters really well. There's just some extra bits of dialogue and extra bits of pieces that have been put in that just make this just a slicker version of the film. It's not longer. In fact, I think it's shorter than the original. It's just a really good new version of Rocky IV, and I can highly recommend it for any Rocky fans out there. They asked for the worst. My two worst... They're both kids' films, to be honest. Home Sweet Home Alone. Oh my God, Disney, what did you do that for? Don't do it again, please. Just leave Home Alone again. Alone. Completely. Stick with one and two. All the other th- rest of them, just rubbish. Stop it. Peter Rabbit 2. Who let James Corden get his hands on this franchise? Get rid of him. And let's put Peter Rabbit back to how he used to be, back when I was a child. I think that's pretty much it for me. Uh, as I said, I'm Gav Smith. From the My Favourite Film podcast. You can catch the podcast. It's available on all podcast channels. It will be coming back to a podcast channel near you in January, with the first episode of 2022 being when Harry met Sally, with Gary Coleman, stand up comedian, actor, producer, you name it, he does it. So until then, from me, bye bye for now. So we'll, we'll jump back into our fives to
0: one um, with Cliff, your number five.
3: Hey, you're not going to like me, it's
0: malignant. I can appreciate why people like it, just not for me.
3: So, obviously, James Wan and Lee Winnell, like, made Saw, best friends, you know, stormed Hollywood with, with Saw, and they've gone their own way since, um... I I kind of thought that when I was watching Malignant, I thought, oh, is this James Wan's answer to Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man? I think they were made at about the same time, but because of the pandemic, there's a big gap between their releases. Um, I mean, it's not as good as The Invisible Man. And I spent most of it going, I'm not sure how much I like this. There's a lot of very annoying things about it. But when the twist comes, it's one of those twists that makes you reassess everything you're a bit, hmm, about amazing. Ah, ha, ha I get it. I get it. And wow, what a twist. It's so good. And unlike, I mean, cause James Wan is amazing at twists. Cause obviously you got Saw, which was one of the greatest ever. Um, even Dead Silence. I love, I love thinking about the twist in Dead Silence. Shame it's such a tedious film getting to that point. And, um, and then, like, once the twist comes, it's pretty much done. Uh, the twist and Malignant comes at the right point, about half an hour from the end, so you've still got plenty of film left to enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's great. The, the one thing I didn't like is the... You remember how the original Nightmare on Elm Street ends? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the lamest ending <laughs> <laughs> of any amazing film. Uh, it's got, basically, the Nightmare on Elm Street ending, which is a real shame. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to see a sequel. I don't know how they topped the twist. Really, yeah,
0: I think there's a sequel in there somewhere. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. yeah.
0: My number five has been mentioned already. It is Neil de Costa's Candyman. Um, I don't really know what else to say. Really. Um, it. I think it's probably been bloated in my expectations because it was the first time I was back at the cinema. Um, for a very long time, and it was just everything. The imagination that that film has, the body horror, everything which for the past 18 months you've seen on a little monitor screen, seeing it in large, larger than life, all of these ideas, um, the experimentation I think it takes a bit of a leap from the end of Act 2 to Act 3 but it's just, it, it's swinging full of fences and it's this emergence of a new director who is doing horror in a way which I don't think the mainstream of horror really wants it's so patient and it, it doesn't go for jump scares I think there's one jump scare really if I remember, it, it's much a dirtier horror movie. Little bits like removing fingernails and jamming hooks in, in wounds. and It's just a gross movie. And seeing it on that big screen, I think it was just the right movie at the precisely right time for me. If I saw it again, I don't know whether I'd like it as much, but that I'm reviewing it as an experience. And that experience, yeah, I absolutely adored it.
3: It's interesting you say it takes a leap between Act Two and Act Three because I feel like there's stuff missing from that film. It runs 90 minutes and it feels like it should be at least half an hour longer. Yeah. It feels actually like it should be a big two and a half hour you know, prestige art house horror like Suspiria. Um, I feel that. Harry Astor's Candyman. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels like there's, there should be more in mm. it and it feels, like, it feels like there's been a lot chopped out. I think I'll buy the Blu-ray and find out what the missing six minutes of deleted scenes are and if they fill any of the, any of the gaps.
0: Those yeah, gaps are, they are decent. It takes some huge leaps in logic, I think.
3: So, yeah. And, I mean, it literally feels like there are scenes missing at some points. Like, well, hang on, where are we now? What right. How did they get but there? Put the
0: right movie at the right time. And, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. That's good Never underestimate the importance <clears throat> of your experience. Mm, indeed. grain, number five.
1: So my number five um, is a Taiwanese horror film called The Sadness. Oh, Lord. uh, (laughs) Desperate to see this. Directed by Canadian filmmaker Rob Habez or Jabez. I don't know. Um, Buckle yourselves in because it's a ride. Um, it, it It is a virus horror. And although generally when I was watching it first, I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. Like, I don't want to be watching viral horror in a pandemic, like, you know. But, fuck me, it is fucking visceral and there's there's a scene that takes place on a train and my eyeballs were literally melting out of my (laughs) face. It is, it's very violent, it's very sick. And, but, you know, sometimes when you see really violent films, you're like, was that necessary? This is... (laughs) Like, this is very necessary and it's, oh my God, from beginning to end, I was literally like this. And, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Asian horror because it just, it feels like it has something that the kind of Hollywood doesn't. It has a lot of feelings and emotions as well as terror. Um and I just feel like the sadness balanced everything perfectly. And I swear to God, if Hollywood do a remake of this, I'm gonna fucking go burn something down. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. It's got a <laughs> bit of a
0: reputation as a nasty, yeah. nasty by That one.
2: I heard a lot of it things is about, nasty. Yeah, I heard a lot of things about um, the sadness and was slightly. Mm. <laughs> hmm.
1: mm. Don't judge me for liking it so much.
2: We've all got our vices. Never judge people on their <laughs> taste. Um, Vincent, number five. My number five is um, another award contender. There's been a few of these. Um, it is Judas, well, indeed, um, award winner. Judas and the Black Messiah. Now, Judas and the Black Messiah was up. Um, covers the mystery um, of Fred Hampton, the deputy chairman of the. Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s um, and his eventual his persecution and eventual assassination by the FBI and it's told from the perspective of um, one of his uh, <coughs> one of his lieutenants. And what we have in Judas and the Black Messiah is a ferocious, compelling, angry, heartbreaking, yet nuanced and measured historical drama of coercion, revolution, betrayal and institutional oppression. Um so it's about a lot obviously. <laughs> um it's it's always interesting when you have um a when you have um, a film that is obviously about um historical events, particularly um, events of hist- of activism, events of um revolution. Um you know, how does one make sure that this doesn't I mean does one present this purely as sort of a historical piece and in the case of Judas and the Black Messiah I would say no it isn't simply a historical piece it is an extremely relevant timely film coming um you know with well we could say in the aftermath of but let's face it in the ongoing um black lives matter campaign um it is very among one respect in one respect it is about um yeah the oppression of the African American civil rights and um movements by the um effect by the by what's been described as a de facto apartheid um in the United States. Um you know, Martin Sheen crops up playing J. Edgar Hoover as the most loathsome creature imaginable, which many would say J. Edgar Hoover was, fair enough. Um but it's but a lot of its focus is on Fred Hampton, um and um, and his, the lieutenant character played by, um, Lakeith Stanfield. You've got Fred Hampton played by, um, Daniel Kaluuya, who won the BAFTA and the Oscar, um, for best, um, supporting actor. Um, but director Shaka King, I think he, he never loses sight of making sure that he is telling this story and he's telling it from the different perspectives, because he does include, um, you know, the perspective of what it would mean to be coerced, um, by, um, an institution like the FBI. Um, While at the same time, it's a perfect example, I think, of telling a political story without letting the politics overwhelm the storytelling. Um, So, yeah, my number five,
0: um, Judas and the Black Messiah, Uh, yeah, blew me away. Hmm. That was on the uh, honourable mentions list for me. Becoming a big fan of Lakeith Stanfield, he's a very, very talented actor.
3: Mm. Um, So, number four, Cliff. And number four is uh, not a horror film. Whoa! It's uh, preparations to be together for an unknown period of time, <laughs> which is a great title. Uh, directed by Lily Holvat. It's a uh, it's about a Hungarian surgeon who she's been working in America for several years, uh, but she's met another Hungarian doctor at a conference in New Jersey and has decided to move back to Budapest so that they can be together but when she goes to their prearranged meeting point in time he doesn't turn up and so well she finds out a bit more about him finds out who he is and stuff I've, i was expecting just a normal kind of the kind of art house drama you get on movie <laughs> you know, one of those one of those things i kind of like turns out it's a terrifically tense psychological thriller it, it's brilliant um it is very... Yeah, it's just tense. It's just tense. What more do you need? And it's mysterious. It is enigma- enigm- enigmatic. And you never quite know if her interactions with this other Doctor are real or in her head. And that plays right through to the end. And Natasha Stalk, who... uh yes yeah, her name. Natasha Stalk is brilliant in it. She's just like a wonder to behold. <laughs> She's great. And yeah, really good film that's probably... Uh, I don't know if it got overlooked or whatever, but I mean, it's got a silly title Hmm. and (laughs) it's good. It's on moving.
0: What I like about these top 10 so far is there's just so much that I've got to look up now and check out. Nothing traditional, nothing traditional about anything that we're picking here. Um, So my number four, we're at four, aren't we? Yeah. Um, Again, another left turn here uh, is um, Max Barbaco's Palm Springs. Which is a surprise to me, because I will absolutely never stop hating Andy Samberg. Yeah, same. (laughs) Hate the man. He just thinks he's funny. Absolutely. It's insufferable. And what I liked about this is he's put in a role where, through the fate of being stuck in a a time loop, that arrogance and that ego has been completely stripped away from him. And it's probably the most introspective comedy drama about being stuck in a time loop, which is thoughtful and intelligent and very, very, very funny at the same time, which is a surprise, honestly. Um star-making turn from his uh, from his opposite number, I guess you call him, his love interest. Um, Natasha... Oh, no, it's been such a while.
3: Christine Miliotti. Kristen
0: Milioti. Kristen Milioti, Yes. Star turn from her. I think she co-wrote it as well. She had a, a finger playing that, a role playing that. And this is just a fun movie, an interesting movie, a thoughtful movie. And it, the Andy Sandberg's Andy Sandberg, which is good, <laughs> honestly.
3: Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it's no Happy Death though. No, no. But, I mean, I, I love that
0: too. But yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. Um. I. I. I'm trying to remember what I liked about it because the. Pro- I have a big problem with American comedy, m- modern American comedy. It's like there's a quip and then there's a reaction shot to someone going, pulling a face yeah. so that you know it's, it was a funny quip, even though after the time it's not even a joke there. And you're meant to laugh at the reaction face rather than what was said. And he's very much one of um, those people,
0: yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. But it's a very likeable plot. Hmm. I think it gets by on the, on the premise. It
0: does, it does indeed. But uh, yes, uh, a grain, number four. All right, yes.
1: So this has already been mentioned, but it it, for me, Titan was my my number four by Julia De Cornell. Um I I love films where I had no clue about this going into it. I, I had, you know, there's no no kind of real clue in the title even, and I went in and I was like, ah, yeah, okay, you know, maybe she's gonna continue with her raw kind of thing, and then all of a sudden. It becomes like if Christine was directed by David Cronenberg (laughs) and there's this bit with a car and you're just like, oh, oh, okay. Um, And then the reason that I kind of liked it was, you know, of course, there's a lot of trans allegories in this film, but I also liked this thing about pregnant people and just how gross pregnancy is. And I feel like it was a really good kind of symbolism of that. Um, Not so much with car oil and stuff and, uh, uh, you know, almost um, HR Geiger style things, but, I did really enjoy it for its body horror that only kind of pregnant people could kind of associate with. Um, so that's why it was my number four. She's just such
0: a fascinating voice as well. I mean, what what is yeah. she going to do next? She's unpredictable to the extreme.
1: What is she on? I want to know. What is she on?
3: <laughs> Sounds like she's on pure creativity.
1: <laughs>
3: I like the bit with the stool. <laughs> it's... <laughs>
0: You can't even spoil it though. That's, that's the thing. It, it's just pure imagination, you know. Yeah. You can't spoil it, but still go in mm-hmm. on as little as possible. Yeah. Okay, uh, Vincent, number four.
2: Well, my number four is yes. Anticipation <laughs> there. <laughs> Something that took a long time to reach the screen um, had various attempts to to um, be produced. And before finally Arriving and then being delayed Again Space Jam (laughs) (laughs) Well Space is involved but not Space Jam Or Space Spice Because my number four Is Dune Or should I say Dune Part one Hmm. Dune is an intense and Stunning sensory overload Of dazzling invention magnificent world building and truly epic storytelling. It perfectly balances pace and action as well as tensions, personal and political, internal and external, infinitesimal and immense. I will I know we you know we've, we've said a, a few times, you know, about the fallacy of talking about directors, but fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve, it seems, can do no wrong. Every film of his I've seen, Encendie, uh, Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and now Dune, every one of them, I think, has knocked it out of the park. He is somebody who knows how to use cinema in such a way that will simultaneously transport the viewer to a different world, literally, while also making that world com- feel completely Inhabited, um, you know, through the kind of details of the culture that he's putting, up, that is being put on screen, um, the array of characters and Dune has a stacked cast, um, and yet that stacked cast never overwhelm, um kind of the drama. I never got the sense that anyone was there saying, "Hey, look at me." Um, it, yeah, it was a, com- a very complete uh, experience, and as I say, it manages to take you from literally the shifting of grains of sand to the gulf of space in ways that felt completely engaging. My only problem with Dune is that I've got to wait two years for the next part (laughs) and I'm so (coughs) glad that um, it has been greenlit because you know I would happily spend another five hours in that and if this turns into a whole like adaptation of all of Herbert's Frank Herbert's novels. And we have, you know, the Dune cinematic franchise. Yeah, I'd be okay with that, because that is a world I want to spend time in.
0: I, so, yes, yeah. my number four, Dune. I really, really, really wish I could get on board with that one. Um, I wish I could see what other people do, but it's just not for me, unfortunately. I Well, that's okay. We'll feed you to the sandworms. <laughs> yes. I just thought, we'll get into that when we do the Denny Villeneuve episode in the future, I assume, so I don't want to front load that too much. Um, so, number three we're at now, Cliff.
3: Yeah, so, Billy Piper writes, uh, stars, and directs herself in Rare Beasts, um, which is, I haven't watched many Richard Curtis rom-coms, I mean, I've, I've seen Four Weddings and that's it, uh, but I get a the impression of what he's about and what kind of thing he makes i think um billy piper is basically telling richard curtis to s- kick himself in the dick <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a reading. <laughs> it's it's incredible i i love it when um a director is also on screen and somehow filming herself in a brilliant way like making a really great visually brilliant film and also delivering an incredible performance on uh, on the other side of the camera i don't know how that's even possible it like there must be two billy pipers uh, <laughs> she must have split herself because i don't know how it's feasible that you can make such a great film and oh, her acting her acting is incredible i really wish this film made me wish i'd seen her tv shows like um was it Diary of a Cool Girl, mm. Secret Diary of a Cool Girl, whatever it's called, and I Love Susie. I wish I'd seen them because she's brilliant. And uh, this is a film about she's playing like a kind of uh, 30-something professional woman in the media. It's all very, you know, a jolly kind of lovely London media set, you know, except it subverts that. Everyone's, all the women in it are just... Got mental problems. Her family is terrible. Her, the her, the best opportunity of a boyfriend she can get is an absolute asshole, who's surely based on Lawrence Fox. <laughs> um, it's 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 just one of those films that you know. It's righteous. It's empowering. Mean. It's funny. It makes you feel good that someone's saying the world is so bad.
0: Hmm. Right. So my number three has been mentioned, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. It's uh, The Green Knight from David Lowery. Uh, Only thing I will say is I'm constantly mourning about the fact that Britain and Ireland, Ireland are better at doing it than the UK. is. We've got all this history, all this folklore, all this mythology. And our horror filmmakers, our genre filmmakers do slashes or home invasion movies. It's just boring. This movie, Green Knight, it's playing with all those those toys in that toy box, that folkloric history, and it's doing it with amazing visuals and amazing ideas, and it's the best casting of Ralph Innocent ever, because that man's voice, my word.
3: <laughs> Better than the Wicks advert?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's
0: got a house you could build, a voice you could build houses on, that man because uh, that's why they got into to do the woods it, it's, it's just <laughs> such a great use out of British history and British folklore and it's done about as artfully as humanly possible and I'm not sure in the last half I know what actually happens it, it's such a weirdly put together movie, it's not what people want it to be it's something else entirely and yeah, it's just a little bit of magic as far as I'm concerned, The Green Knight
3: I concur, um I, I, I would say for me it's this year's Mandy. It looks beautiful. It's so boring. I can understand
0: that. I hated Mandy, so I don't know why I'm this way with this one. But you know, it's just the way it is sometimes.
3: I I, th- I think part of the reason is I don't like fantasy. Oh yeah, and, yeah, that would you know, help. The Green Knight is just pure fantasy. It is, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's one of those th- like, how can there be any kind of how can, how can you involve yourself in a in a world where the rules are constantly changing? where, yeah, he can die, but then he can come back because no one really dies or whatever. I don't know. It's just made up, isn't it? just made up. (laughs) Okay. Right. Uh, Follow that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Agree, agree number three. Uh,
1: Again, it's been mentioned Candyman was my number three. Um, Massive fan of the original. Um, It's not a big fan of slashers, but it's... um, the original is one of my favorite slashers. Um, and I just feel like with a lot of times when you get a remake, uh, you see it like with Black Christmas when they remade it and then completely like botched it yeah. and just made it terrible when Black Christmas is the best Christmas film of all time. <laughs> um, but Naya um just made it like her own as well as other peoples of this generation. And I love the way that in the original the the whole thing behind Candyman was the spoken word and how that can take on a horror all by itself. Um and she continued that and then put subtext behind it and I just loved it. And I also love, again, in the original Candyman, they did um, a thing on, you know, like Urban Legend, the Hookman. Mm. Um, and in this one, they did, you know, the the razor blades in the candy. And I just love Urban Legends. I'm such a little, like, nerd for Urban Legends. So I really liked that. Um, so, yeah, nothing else I can really say on Candyman that hasn't already been said. Hmm.
0: It's a shame that she's going to be going from the, uh, a Marvel movie. I would have liked to have seen what yeah. she could do really? in the independent film world, but... You can't begrudge your success. Well, yeah,
2: quite, and so, then yeah. just I mean, so she, what it's likely to mean is, like Chloe Zhao, she can bring her own sort of um, particular style to um, the Marvel to, to her Marvel instalment, and then she can, you know, likely be in a position to go back and do whatever she likes.
0: She's doing so, uh, Captain Marvel too, if I remember correctly, isn't she? The Marvels, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Vincent, number three. Number three. Well,
2: my number three uh, is, an- is another remake, actually. Um, It's a remake coming out 60 years after the original, um, which was itself an adaptation of an extremely successful stage play, which has continued to be produced. Because my number three is West Side Story, a dazzling, dizzying, stunning, spectacular, moving and exhilarating cinematic bonanza of physical expression, human passion, evocative spaces, emotional lighting, entrancing music, racial tensions, and social realism. Now that is a heady mix um, to put together into a single film and West Side Story completely pulls it off. I am of the opinion, perhaps controversially, um, that Steven Spielberg is the most talented and versatile director working at least in Hollywood today. And to see him taking on a musical was something that I had fairly high expectations for. And what I, well, there are many things I love about West Side Story, but one aspect in particular is the sheer range of cinematic techniques being used. I have particular fondness for long takes and there are various long takes continuous shots in West Side Story the opening sequence um has a long take that glides through a slum of uh, west side of new york waiting for de- for demolition um it continues and it's and the and the camera itself is dancing um i think and that's kind of the point another and sometimes it the camera will stand back and capture the mind-blowing choreography that's going on um, among the different dancers are the jets and the sharks and so on. Um, and other times we've got um, quick edits, um, which are taking us very much into the dancing as well. Um, I think it's a film where the da- a musical where the dancing is more important than the singing because there's so much physical expression and um, a great deal being put forward by physical movements. And the and there are points early on when the lighting is quite is somewhat dark and dark. But later on, it becomes um, literally more expressive. There is more colour in the frame. Um, And to do all of that, while also... And I thought this was actually when I saw the original um, West Side Story movie, which I think is brilliant as well. um, I was surprised with that, and perhaps less so with this version being a remake. um, But it does a really good job of discussing the racial tensions between these different groups and the social realism Um, So so it's a musical about social realism and racial tensions and gentrification. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it is, really. Um, Mm. And I think it does that brilliantly. Um,
3: So, yes, my number three, West Side Story. I love a good musical. Um, I like West Side Story when I've seen it on stage. I don't like the 61 film. I find it quite kind of staid and stage-bound kind of thing. So I am looking forward to this. I am aware, though, that the last time... I watched a new musical in December. It was Cats, Ooh. so <laughs> I can understand
2: yeah, little, your apprehension. Maybe wait until, until it should probably still be out in January. Maybe wait till then. Mm. <laughs> it is definitely mm. very cinematic, so it doesn't have that
3: yeah. problem. Hmm. So. Oh, cats was cinematic. Y- y- that, you're that not the right was, sort. That was least of its problems. <laughs> <Not sure. laughs> I mean, for, for a movie
0: that has a butthole cut, yeah, I think being cinematic is the least of its. <laughs>
3: its... <laughs> so, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hold up, hold up, hold up. I mentioned the bumhole cut on Devil Times Five, and people said, "No, you've you've made that." I it exists. Did, uh, I didn't no, make no, it up. No, no, did you I didn't. Done. It so exists. There is a rumor. There's a bumhole yeah, somewhere out there. It exists.
0: Right, I not but somewhere. I thought I
3: was going mad <laughs> when they said how uh, you made up the barrel cut. I thought I was going mad. But, well, okay, It cool. it's
2: a, sounds like a fairly nutty concept, but then again, there are so many nutty concepts.
0: Why wouldn't? Why shouldn't this one be true? <laughs> yes. Okay. So number two, Cliff.
3: Uh, yeah. So my number two is the is the closest thing that I have seen to a new musical this year. Probably last night in Soho. Hey. Wow, that's, yeah. that's very yeah. high. Um, yes, because it is brilliant. And I can, of all the films I've seen this year, it's the one I cannot wait to see again. Um, the most. It's, uh, I mean, there's so much in it. Every time I try to think of what I love about it, I think of a different moment, like from beginning to end. I love the, uh, I love everything about it I freaking love everything It's so good It's a comedy It's a musical It's a ghost story It's a mystery It's a spectacle of production design Special effects It's that amazing Jalow-like finale <laughs> And uh, oh, Igraine, the thumbs no. down on this
1: Go thumbs on Thumbs down uh, It nearly made my worst list Oh, wow Really? Um, uh, visually stunning like, I'll give it that. Visually stunning. Um, I just felt it was a bit like... oh, Just the tropes of, like, you know, poor girls now they're sex workers and let's villainize. You know, it just felt a bit like do we have to do these tropes again? Like... Oh, I don't know. It just... it Something didn't click with me. And, like, don't get me wrong, everyone involved were stunning and amazing. Um... It just, uh, you mentioned the Jello and I'm a massive fan of Jello and it just felt, it just felt like Edgar Wright was trying to imitate a Jello, but it wasn't quite hidden. Um,
3: oh, uh, I mean, I, I, do, I don't want to go spoiler territory, but the ending is quite deep red. <sighs>
1: Hmm, I just, no, I, no. In a a different kind of way, but
3: I loved
2: it. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, last night in Soho was my 11th favourite of the year. Yeah. And I will say I loved 97% of it. (laughs) And then there's a 3% just right, well, during the final act where I was like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're doing that. Stop (laughs) doing that. Okay, you've stopped doing that and you've gone back to what you were doing. Why did you make that silly maneuver over there, Edgar? What's wrong with you?
3: Hmm. remember what you were saying about um, the crowd reaction to that Spider-Man film mm. uh, whatever it's called No it Way Home <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that thing um, There's. Uh, I, I saw last night in Soho at the premiere at the London Film Festival and um, fucking hell, the, the two jokes about South London, the second one the callback, oh, yeah. got a round of applause <laughs> you're not going to get that at any other screen and it was so good fair point <laughs> hmm. yeah so
0: just to check, there, Rob, what was your view on last night in Solo? I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I need okay. a second view of it. I don't think it's as good post twist as it is pre twist, but I think I, I need to sleep on that. Maybe watch it a second time. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jello too, but yeah, I think it just needs a second watch for me.
3: I think the, the the thing is, like, it starts out quite drab and colorless, and then as it gets more insane, it gets better looking. Mm. And so it it takes it, well, certainly for me, it took me with it took me with it because of the way that it the 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 visual styling just gets more and more excessive as the story goes more insane and i really loved that Hmm.
0: okay my number two is oh it's got such a long title uh (laughs) summer of soul or when the revolution could not be televised Jesus, (laughs) Uh, it's a documentary by questlove uh, about a event that was held, I think it was in Harlem in the nineteen sixties, which is effectively the um, oh, the the what's it called again? Loves, it, what, livestock? Ah, the name of it. Complete- woodstock. Woodstock. Yes. <laughs> it's effectively the Woodstock. <laughs> <Livestock>. <laughs> the wood- I was off. I was. The I was festival. mixing it up with live aid. It's it's a, a horrible amalgamation that I imagine there. What? <laughs> Um, music is a major part I mean going to events and I think if this was released any other year I don't think it has sort a chance of being anywhere near my top 10 but because I miss live music so so much to have this live concert movie effectively it just made it all real again and the, the, you know the feelings of hitting you right in the gut of what you miss the most it's just a beautiful experience live music and this captures it about as effortlessly as imaginable and the legendary Nineteen sixties black musicians that are in it too. It's there's just a little bit for everybody if you're open to that sort of stuff. But effectively, yeah, that is the essence of it. It just makes me really, really, really miss live music, and yeah, for a movie to make you miss something like that, it's wonderful stuff. <sighs> okay, agree Number two.
1: So my number two is another eco folk horror. I don't know what's going on. Like folk horror is not usually not my bag but this year apparently eco-folk horror after, is where it's at after Gaia you wouldn't think there was mushroom left oh, <laughs> oh, potty <laughs> Um so In the Earth from oh, Ben yeah. Wheatley nice. um, was my number two now I, we've talked about before about experiences in the cinema this was my ultimate cinematic experience it was my first time back in the cinema um, after everything had gone into lockdown here and It was me and, like, two friends. and We were the only ones in the cinema. And it was so fucking loud. And this film is very hourly assaulting on you. It's a big part of the plot. Again, someone is going into... A scientist is going into the forest um, because there is a virus that has happened. Um, And while there he comes across people that kind of ambush him. And there's this whole thing going on. Um, one of my friends likened it to being on acid in Glastonbury. (laughs) Um, I have neither been to Glastonbury nor ever done acid. So I don't know how accurate that is, but it is a full on experience. Now saying that I don't know how well it's going to convert to home cinema, as opposed to like that big experience where you've got the visuals are in your face. It's very, very loud. Um, but I'm putting it down as an experience, and it was a very enjoyable one for me. I did actually watch it at home. Um,
3: I've got, you know, surround sound and everything, okay. and the big screen. It was brilliant. Um, okay, good. Brilliant experience. Yeah, it does work if you've got good. the equipment. Yeah. I have done acid. I have been to glass, <laughs> but not at the same time. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> well, something to think about in the future.
1: Great.
3: I've got my ticket for next year. I haven't got my (laughs) drugs
0: yet. Let us know. (laughs) Rishi Smith is amazing, is it? Joel Fry. Mm. I love Joel Fry. Nasty little bugger in it, he really is.
3: Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Yeah,
0: it's good. Vincent, number two.
2: Well, speaking of nasty little buggers, my number two features a whole bunch of them, (coughs) and they're effectively all the men. Because let's face it, men are horrible. And a film that knows how to demonstrate um, that men are horrible is Promising Young Woman.
3: Uh,
2: This is, for me, a shrewd, brutal, darkly comic, pastel-coloured truth missile straight to the vile heart of privileged toxic masculinity and the line between justice and revenge. Um, Promising Young Woman follows a young woman of much promise, um, called Cassie, played by the magnificent Carrie Mulligan, who is on a mission of revenge to, uh, after a friend of hers was sexually assaulted um, and died um, in, in ways that are not actually ever made clear, because that's not the point. And what she does is she identifies, she goes out, she pretends to be drunk, and gets the men who pick her up to well, to confront themselves, um, in ways that are, that really exposes, I think, this, um, the fallacy of the, I'm a nice guy approach. And why I, and I say this is a truth missile because it's a very, I mean, it's a, it's a satirical film, um, in the way that it presents masculinity and in a very recognizable way. And speaking as a, you know, heterosexual, cis, white man, I recognise the attitudes in them yeah, that I see, be uh, the male attitudes portrayed in that film. I've seen it, and frankly, I think I've had it. I've had those attitudes. And so it's a an, an uncomfortable watch from a male perspective, I think, for all the right reasons. And, and I will not pretend to understand the female perspective. But again, going back to this idea of the empathy machine, is this getting me to... is this, is this film that gets me to look at um to appreciate the experience of those that I don't share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely. It's one of the very few films that I've seen twice in the cinema and both times. Um, you know, the second time I saw you no, I lie, sorry. I first saw it on streaming, and then I went and then I saw it in the cinema afterwards. And both times, I found more. I found more to watch on it. And as a piece of cinema, I think Emerald Fennell puts together something quite ingenious in terms of the the way it's shot, the way it's edited. The script is excellent. Um, Emerald Fennell d- wrote as well as directed. Picked up the BAFTA and the Oscar for original screenplay. Um, and it really hooked me right from the get go because the opening, the title sequence, is a series. It is very much the female gaze um, on the male body these male bodies, um, dancing, um, but in a way that actually makes them grotesque. And it's like, okay, this is using the gaze of cinema to really have a, take a close look at something that maybe we don't look at enough. And that grotesquery continues throughout of this way of presenting, um, masculinity. It's odd that it's a, you know, it's a woman's film. It's following female protagonists, but I think it's actually more uh, just as interested in prese- it's how it presents masculinity as it does the female experience um yeah not a film i can it's i think it's near perfect i cannot fault it promising young woman my second favorite film of 2021
3: yeah it's really good it's um it was not my number 15 um it's a great story writing um is the main thing i i don't like uh, bo burnham in it i didn't understand if he's meant to be genuinely a nice guy or a nice guy in quotes <laughs> couldn't get my head around that because I, uh, he just came across as a cop <laughs> and i cannot give a high high rating to anything to any film that has that absolutely egregious worst scene of the year dance in the supermarket scene which is i uh, it's awful Hey, yeah, hey, uh, hey, 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 hey.
2: It's a drugstore, not a
3: supermarket. <laughs> it's a supermarket. Um, is it? Is Emerald, Emerald Fennel is British. She would have written supermarket in the script. Kerry <laughs> <laughs> Mulligan's British as well, I think, isn't she? Anyway, it's a British film, isn't it? Isn't it a British film? Funding-wise, yeah. Yes. It's a supermarket. It's just set in America.
2: <laughs> they do have anyway, supermarkets in terrible America, scene. but this is a drugstore.
3: Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> terrible scene. Uh, good film. Uh, so, Cliff, uh, you're number one. My number one is Shadow in the Cloud. Ah. Yeah, uh, directed by Roseanne Liang. Um, this is... Okay, it came out on New Year's Day, I think. It came out on January the 1st. So basically 2021 cinema peaked on day one, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Um, it's a weird one. I, I, this shouldn't be my number one. It's a B-movie. It's a trashy, trashy, <laughs> trashy B-movie done with a fairly big budget. Um, it's... Just so much fun, though. It's so much fun. It, I first heard of it, I guess, when the reviews were coming out of TIFF 2020, and I it sounded like a kind of, you know, arty thing, because oh yeah, yeah, it had a premiere at a prestigious film festival. It's, it stars Chloe Grace Moritz. It, yeah, it's got a woman director. You know, 2020, that was still quite a novelty. Um, it's just trash really enjoyable trash but it's like the first half of it at least the first half chloe grace moretz is trapped inside a gun turret underneath a world war ii plane in the air over the pacific um so it's one of those claustrophobic thrillers like buried or something like that um she's getting misogynistic shit from all the uh, uh the not raf whatever the new zealand australian version of the raf is called can't remember uh, over the over her walkie-talkie, her radio, but she's fighting off enemy planes, enemy Japanese planes as they're flying past, and they start to get respect for her. But she still can't get out of the thing. The problem is there's a great big monster flying around the plane.
2: <laughs> well, we've all it's had a flights. a total like ripoff.
3: That. Yeah, it's a total rip off of that Twilight Zone episode, that famous nightmare at twenty thousand feet, um, with William Shatner. But the, yes, with William Shatner, and also in the um, the movie version of Twilight Zone. With uh, John Lithgow, I think, isn't yeah. that? Anyway, it is a rip-off of that, but that just makes me love it even more, because it's a B-movie, so it's just ripping shit off. It's, and, and then once she actually escapes from the, the gun turret and, you know, has to deal with a monster, fucking hell, it's so silly. It's It made me think, hang on, should I actually watch big-budget action movies would I like them because I love this and no it's just because it's exactly <clears throat> exactly the right level of silly um, it's perfect yeah
0: hairshot short film before this uh, it's basically the raid but about a nurse who's standing up against Yakuza it's amazing I think it's on Vimeo you should, you should check that out
3: oh right I can't well, remember the name of it is it similar style yeah it's kind of similar similar tone uh, I
0: guess so yeah it's about 10 minutes it's really really worth a watch
2: cool hey cliff just to check are you a fan of snakes on a plane
3: oh it's really good yeah just checking all right so my number 10 was a little more flesh too. nine woodlands dark and days bewitched A history of folk horror eight bad hair seven slumber party massacre six bull five malignant four preparations to be together for an unknown period of time three rare beasts two last night in soho one shadow in the clad
0: excellent eclectic number uh, 10 there um my number one jumping off from that is a, a total cheat it's a short movie it was released in a box set um but it was a 2021 movie it's called go seppuku yourself uh, 30 minutes long it functions as the third part of a trilogy which is basically the director Toshiaka Toyoda yoda given the hugest hugest middle finger to the japanese government for how they've dealt with covid he, he, he doesn't try to hide it he absolutely does not try to hide it and um, they use a it's, a it's basically a samurai movie in all but subtext there's a killer going around, there's an epidemic Um, and they find what they think is the killer and the killer goes on this monologue, it's all built around this monologue This one of the best monologues I've ever heard, it's full of bottom of the belly violent rage it's so beautifully acted and it has this sense of style. It's got, um, I don't know if you know the term, uh, no Theatre, N-O-H Theatre. Uh, it has that, but like noise punk rock as the score. And it's, it's just basically, do I like this stuff? Tick, 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 tick. This is all me. This is all excellent. But uh, you, the way it uses um, fog machines and slow sort of zooming in, like these beautiful shots scattered throughout it. It's like nothing I've really ever seen. It instantly became one of my five favourite top short films ever. It's just ferociously fearless in a way that I really really like.
3: So that that thing about the brutal monologue is it like reminiscent of Philip Noye Philip uh monologue in Gaspar Noe's *Khan* and Soul Country* 2? I can't say I am.
0: I've not seen those, but. He's not afraid of offending anybody. He's just basically gone for the guttural in every word that he says. So so maybe... Perhaps like yeah, Edward uh, Norton. I'd recommend, I'd recommend yeah.
3: those No way films.
0: Then.
2: Perhaps like Edward Norton's ferocious monologue in 25th Hour, where he, you know, fuck everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is basically that for for like 10 minutes of the shot. It's it's outstanding stuff. So run down my 10. At number 10, the Medium 9 Titan. 8, Broadcast Signal Intrusion. 7, Riders of Justice. 6, The French Dispatch. Five, Candyman. Four, Palm Springs. Three, The Green Knight. Eh? Two, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And number one, go seppuku yourself.
1: So my number one <coughs> is Malignant.
0: Oh, hey.
2: I'm the odd one out here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's nice we've all seen it and have differing views. Hmm.
1: So I am a James Wan, Stan. I adore Saw. I adore the conjuring the first one because i felt like it really built brought back like a a william castle feel to the ghost story um very you know skeletons flying everywhere and old women on rollerblades floating through the place um and i really enjoyed it um but i feel like he got a bit dogged down by um the studios so he brought out stuff like the nun and the curse of la Rona and um most recently the conjuring three which is possibly i i'm it it should have been on my list of bad movies because it was awful but then it feels like he came back with malignant and he he'd made all the studios happy and they were like yeah have all this money go wild and he was like right lads mm-hmm. here i go and he was like you know what i'm just gonna go crazy and enjoy myself and i really like it when you see directors enjoy themselves on films because they have got that freedom um i love its influences from the Jallo. um i felt it took all the the the, the greatest cheesiness from Jallo and and portrayed it and i the twist as soon as the twist kind of came about it actually made me put on such a goofy face i was like oh
3: <laughs> and
1: i love films that make me have that like visceral reaction usually it's you know blood and guts whatever but this was just so ridiculous and i feel uh, being such a horror fan especially recently with like Ariaster, a lot of horror has become elevated horror oh, and everything's everything's, everything's got to be right everything's got to be deep and everything's got to be meaningful and you know it's got to have super super deep meanings and I feel like even though Malignant does have subtext of mental health, really, it's just great fun. And you can watch it with your mates having a few beers and a smoke of something. And it's just, it's just good fun. And that's, I felt like that's what I needed in 2021, was good fun. And that's what it gave when me. When the
0: credits roll, the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to watch it again. I really do.
2: May I ask, yeah. igraine as a as a fan of mm-hmm. some of James Wan's work, did you see and enjoy Aquaman?
1: Um, I fell asleep during Aquaman. <laughs> um, I I'm not a fan of the DC universe, which is weird cuz growing up I was a fan of the the comic books DC, uh more than I was Marvel and I just feel like DC has lost its darkness, which it was very well known for in yep. its comic books. Um, and that's why I don't like DC uh, cinematic universe. Um, so <laughs> I, did, I didn't I did care for Aquaman. Um,
0: so your, your top 10 would be?
1: My top 10. So number 10 is um, We Need to Do Something. Number nine is The Medium. Number eight was Gaia. Seven was Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. Number six is Censor. Number five was The Sadness. Four, Titane. Three, Candyman. Two, In the Earth. And number one was Malignant. Mm,
0: Very, very good. And Vincent rounding out the round table.
2: Well, my number one is a film that has already been mentioned because my top film of 2021 is Censor. Mm. Now, we've heard from Igraine, um, an excellent synopsis. Um, I would describe Censor... As a dourly designed, desentimentalized, critically nostalgic, and utterly mesmerizing gaze into representation, trauma, and the fracturing of perception, set against a stunning backdrop of media scapegoating and societal violence. What I I love many many things about um, *Censor*, but the thing I'm going to just focus on is it performs what I call critical nostalgia, which is to say looking back at some at something which is often sentimentalized and this desentimentalizes sentimentalizes it and says yes we can recreate a historical period in a lot of loving detail we can make reference to something that has a lot uh, there is a great deal of cultural affection for the video nasties and so on and what we can also do is highlight how bad this was how damaging how, um, you know, as I say, this um, time of, of scapegoating and denial of true problems. Um, I've recently been watching um, Stranger Things, which I really enjoy, and I think that does a nice job of presenting the 1980s without getting too bogged down in its nostalgia for that period. In the case of censor, it's something that is certainly presenting, um, I think, a certain amount of affection for that period, but at the same time making it clear this is a very dark, very damaged time. The points when we get, uh, that there are periods where we get news reports, um, audio bleeding over the action, talking about um, riots, about strikes, about police action, which feels very contemporary. Um, and, you know, anyone who wants to say, yeah, everything was so great in the 80s, was it? Was it really? And I think. In, in America. You
0: know, no. Yeah. But, uh, yeah,
2: no. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, plonk them in, let's plonk Sensor in front of them. And at the same time, Sensor is wonderfully meta-cinematic. Um, pro the direct, writer-director Prano Bailey Bond, whom I had the pleasure of meeting very briefly. I was, um, clang with a name drop. Um, uh, she does a brilliant job of using the medium of cinema, um altering the aspect ratio and at times almost pushing as it were pushing the camera through the video screen, through the television screen into the world of the film as I say, perception and reality fracture. And yeah, it is also a great representation of a traumatized mind, um, damaged mental health, um, held together with a stunning performance by um Neve Algarve um, at the centre of it. Yeah. Sensor, my film of
3: the year. She's so she's Niamh Elgar is so good. Yeah, um, I guess one of one of my favourite TV series of the year was um, Deceit, where she played the detective, the undercover detective um, hunting down Rachel Nickel's killer. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. Was really beautifully made um, series that, and she's my one it. major problem with
0: Sensor is it's using my neck of the woods as a proxy for the eighties. We're not that far behind the rest of the world. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and But uh, you're, number, you're running through your 10
2: again, um, Vince? Well, I'm going to slightly cheat and I'm going to do my top 12 okay. and
3: through the medium of song. Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> this is why you have to be 12.
2: Yeah. Right then. On the 12th day of Christmas, the movies gave to me 12 Minari crops, 11 nights in Soho, Ten times to die. Nine nomad lands. Eight spidery ways home. Seven candy men. Six green knights. Five black massiles. Four dune sunrises. Three west side stories. Two promising young women. And a BBF (laughs) censor.
3: What I like that. Thank you, thank you, didn't, you. you didn't lose faith in it. <laughs> I, I, I do that. If I, if I was going to do that, I'd have lost faith in about 10. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've been doing a top, uh, doing my own version of The Twelve Days of Christmas with my top 12 movies of the year for several years now. It's always. Some, this year was actually easier than previous times. A few years back, when my fifth favourite film of the year was um,
3: Nocturnal Animals, oh. squeezing that into
2: five nocturnal animals.
3: Doesn't scan <laughs> Wasn't Woodlands Dark and Days bewitched. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Summers of Soul or whatever. <clears throat> with whatever that was, the, the, the revolutions will be televised. So, yes.
0: this has been a bumper bumper episode uh, as review of the year episodes tend to be. But coming up in the next few episodes, uh, the first episode of January, which will drop January the 10th, is for Toshiak Teoda, which is our Graham, and uh, Robert Edward, who has a YouTube channel, check that out. On the 20th from the Patreon archive will be Robert Hamer, who is best known for Kind Hearts and Coronets. And on the 30th, as a Patreon exclusive, which will eventually become on the main feed, is episode with Cliff, where where we'll be doing Larry Cohen of the Stuff fame. Hope we do the stuff, the stuff is fun. So, um, if you like this podcast, please do consider subscribing. subscribing. Please do consider giving us a rating. I do believe you can give ratings on sub- uh, Spotify now. I think that's a new uh, evolution of that platform. Uh, if not, Apple Podcasts, please do give us a rating wherever you find us. It does help people discover us uh so where can we find your stuff cliff where else can we find you on the internet
3: uh devil times five uh it's just search for it on podcast things i'm this devil times five it's a horror podcast there's a comedy podcast about horror films hmm. uh, Grant, where can we find your work
1: uh what a scream podcast on any platforms you can hear me Shy on about horror films, um, and then on Twitter at what underscore scream, as well as writing for Ghouls Magazine and Moving Pictures Film Club.
0: Excellent. And Vincent, where can we find you online?
2: Your well, work. Well, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxed um, at Doctor Gain. That's D R G A I N E. I'm not just putting that out. That on. I am a doctor. Um, you can also listen to Invasion of the Potty People wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my uh, reviews on the Critical Movie Critics, as well as um, Bloody Good Screens. Um, And also, if you go to vincentendgame.wordpress.com, you can find a link to all of the various things that I have written.
0: Excellent. Thank you all very, very much, and we will see you all in the next episode.